When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Jared Halverson here. Glad to have you back for another scripture study session here on Unshaken. We've got two amazing revelations to study today. Uh, section 109 and 110, both focused on the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. Before we dive in, I've got a favor to ask. And it's not a favor for me, it's a favor for each other. Uh, I know these lessons are long, and because we go verse by verse, and not a, every verse is created equal, uh, there, there are some parts of the lesson that are probably more important than others. And finding them can be difficult. Uh, if you're one who has the time to be able to dedicate and you start at the beginning and make it to the end, uh, bless you for that, by the way. Uh, but not everyone has that. Uh, and so I thought what might be helpful, if there's a part of uh, this lesson or any lesson that strikes you, uh, it might help you actually to remember where it is and what it was talking about, but also helping others like what's, what, what's the best of in a given revelation or the best of in a given lesson. In the comments section, if, if you're here on YouTube, uh, I don't know how it works on uh, if you're listening to the podcast. Sorry, that might not be a possibility. But on the YouTube version, in the comments section, if you were just to write, the, the, give a timestamp and then write what uh, principle was being taught or what verse was being discussed or just what you learned from that, that part of the conversation. I think that would help you if you ever needed to go back. I, I get t uh, messages sometimes from you going, do you remember when you talked about such and such? And sadly, half the time I can't remember either. Uh, but if, if you timestamp it and say what you learned, uh, A, it would help me know, okay, those are the parts that people found meaningful. Uh, I like it all. <laughs> but, to, but to know, okay, that was worth discussing. Uh, and then to help yourself remember it, to be able to go back, and to help other people who maybe trying to be selective in the time that they have. Uh, again, if you just were to write what you learned uh, or what you liked and then a timestamp, uh, which is just the, the numbers of when it was on, on, on the, the video. You know, 1 colon uh, 12 colon 27. Uh, so 1 hour, 12 minutes and 27 seconds in, whatever it is. Uh, anyway, uh, no pressure uh, if you're not tech savvy or don't want to do it, but I thought that might be a helpful way to to be a class together, okay, as we're all learning uh, together these, these beautiful revelations from the Lord. Now, uh, section 109 and 110, just masterpieces here focused on the Kirtland Temple, uh, particularly at its dedication. And if you've ever been part of a temple open house, uh, when you've been able to go enter a temple, my first one was Dallas when I was a little kid. And we drove across Texas, which is a long way, uh, from Lubbock to Dallas to go wait in line in the pouring rain to be able to go and see the temple. That was the first time I'd been inside, and it was incredible. Uh, fast forward a few years, and I got to go to the temple, the, the temple open house of the Las Vegas temple. Again, from LA, we drove to Vegas and, and got to see that, and I was blown away. Uh, a little bit later, I was old enough to understand a little bit more, and I really wanted to be an architect, and I got to go through the temple open house for the San Diego temple with the architect of it, no less. Uh, that was my dad's uncle, a very successful uh, and award-winning commercial architect in the San Diego area. 
And when the when President Benson approached him and asked him to design a temple for the San Diego area, uh, what an honor! Yeah, I, I think he did an incredible job. But to go through the temple with Uncle Bill, and him knowing that I wanted to be an architect at the time, kind of taking me under his wing and pointing out details and showing me things. That was an open house never to be forgotten. We got to go back for the temple dedication of San Diego. And that was the first time I'd ever been in a temple dedication. And that was life-changing. To participate in the Hosanna Shout, to just see and feel a, a building being given to God. If you remember what we discussed in section 94 about patterns, and patterns to prepare, and patterns to build, and patterns to dedicate. Oh, if I could dedicate my life to God, with a fraction of the spirit and power that I felt when a temple was being dedicated. Oh, then how could God not accept what I'm trying to offer him? Yeah, if you remember the three great pioneer temple dedications that were broadcast across the world you know, with Palmyra and Winter Quarters in Nauvoo. Oh, to, to feel that your stake center was an extension of the temple, complete with with recommends to enter, uh, that was an amazing experience as well. And to have been able to, I mean, it's, it's an incredible thing. I, I, I believe I mentioned this to you in a previous lesson, that as an undergraduate in college studying history, I spent a semester studying temple dedicatory prayers to try to, to create a history of temple dedicatory prayers. And my thesis was that every uh, subsequent dedication, or the prayer, was patterned, speaking of patterns, on the two dedicatory prayers that we have canonized in Scripture. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 8 is the dedicatory prayer of the Temple of Solomon. And Doctrine and Covenant section 109, which we'll study today, is the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple. And as I read oh, 50 other revel uh, dedicatory prayers beyond that, I realized that we do. We pattern all of those based on the two dedicatory prayers we have in Scripture. They've gotten shorter over time. Uh, and I've mentioned that before, but the, the elements of what it is that, that the prophet is pleading for in these prayers, the kinds of blessings he hopes that God will pour down through his holy house. His temple is almost a, a conduit or a channel of, of power, endowed with power from on high, of revelation, uh, just of, of insight and understanding and glory and power and presence. That's the house of God. And, and every time a new temple is dedicated, that's one of the first things I want to, to read is the prayer. And sure enough, I mean, it, it's interesting even to see the spread of sacred space. I spoke at a church history conference once about that when it came to temple dedications and temple construction and the way things are done. And to me, a temple, every time a temple is dedicated, it's like... And we talk about the stakes of Zion as they extend the, the tent uh, of Zion to cover the world. And every time a temple is dedicated, it, to me it's this, this incredible stake being, uh, being fixed into the earth. It's, it's a, a, the epicenter of holiness that then begins to spread out in all directions. Many temple dedicatory prayers don't just dedicate the temple, but also the land that's on it and the country that it's a part of. Uh, it's interesting, and we'll see a hint of that here in 109 as well. When it dedicates the, the land and, it, and those blessings begin to spread throughout that land, there are times in dedicatory prayers where they speak of the history of that area, uh, the history of the church in that part of the vineyard, 
or the part of the, the history of the world in that, in that part of it. And to me, that, that sacralizes uh, or makes holy that, that area and its past and dedicates its future for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even things like, and we'll see that today too, prayers of that those who enter will feel a difference here. Not, not even members of the church, and that happens all the time in open houses, believe me. And as they go back out into their world, it, not members of the church yet, that their lives will be more holy, that they'll be touched and changed by the experience they've had in the house of God. That again extends holiness beyond the walls of the temple. And even the way temples are being built in these days, uh, if you remember the temples built in the 1980s by President Kimball, uh, there was a common design. And you can see in Chicago and in Lima and in Seoul and in Johannesburg uh, and so many others, oh, okay, there's some different elements on the outside, but it's the same basic structure, same kind of floor plan. Uh, but the differences on the outside often reflected local culture. Well, that became even more obvious more, uh, more recently. I mean, I, I'm struck by the Tijuana, Mexico temple because... I mean, as a kid growing up in Southern California, studying California history and spending time uh, learning about the, the Spanish missions and being able to go tour some on field trips, uh, you want to see a great example of, of early Spanish colonial architecture, go to the Tijuana, Mexico temple. It is breathtaking. You want to see, I mean, the, the renderings of the temple in Japan or in, in Thailand and that looks like a Japanese house of God. That looks like a Thai house of God. And I'm so grateful that in the age of this globalization of the church, we're not just oh, Americanizing the rest of the world architecturally. We are honoring their traditions and their history and sanctifying them uh, so that a, a, a local in whatever country would see the temple, even if they, they don't know what happens inside, even if they're not members of the church, and, and have a sense of, that's our building too. Uh, and there is a holiness. Again, I'm just trying to explain this, this spread of sacred space, and we're sanctifying the, the country and its culture and its history and its language. Even when you go into temples now, and so often the walls in some of the ordinance rooms are painted with surrounding scenery. Uh, and so even when you're in the temple, there's a sense of what's outside the temple in the immediate environment, which again brings inside the temple the space that's outside of it. And in the process, sacralizes that space beyond. Uh, I don't know of a better analogy to use than an epicenter of righteousness, of holiness, of sacred space that just emanates out from the temple and makes holy everything in its path. And as temples are dotting the earth, that, that sacred space begins to converge and overlap. The scriptures speak of someday the earth being covered with the knowledge of the Lord, even as the, the waters cover the sea. That seems kind of redundant. The waters cover the sea. The sea is water. Like, exactly. And so to see the earth itself as this Urim and Thummim, the sea of glass, all things are known. This is in the presence of God. Temples are the way that that's going to, to come to pass. And so picture in your mind a, a map of the globe and pinpoint temples everywhere. President Nelson 
oh, seems to have a, a, a place in his heart for the isles of the sea. Uh, and they are dotted small countries, places where there's, oh, it's hard to justify the building of a temple on the basis of numbers alone. But great, uh, great is the worth of souls in the sight of God. And to, to see those epicenters spreading, uh, we're headed for the millennium. And temples are great evidence of that. Now, when it comes to Kirtland and the, the effort, the, the blood, sweat, and tears, the toil and sacrifice, uh, the physically and temporally, emotionally, spiritually, that went into the construction of the, of the Kirtland Temple, they just wanted it to be something worthy of God. There's, at first, they're like, we can't afford to build a, a frame house. Uh, what about logs? Let's just build kind of a log cabin. And Joseph was like, are you kidding me? We're going to give the God of the universe a log cabin to, to, to live in? No. In fact, even a frame house isn't going to be good enough. Let's build it out of stone. And the saints were kind of like, are you serious? I mean, at the time, there were 150 members of the church living in the Kirtland area. 150. That's like half a ward right now. Can you imagine if your bishop sat you down and said, hey, guys, we're going to build a temple. Uh, we, got, we got, you know, 150 of us. Let's give it a shot. It's, whoa, this is going to be an incredible leap of faith and an incredible act of sacrifice, especially considering what they wanted to build. As Joseph and others in the building committee uh, have these spiritual experiences that showed to them what the, what the house is going to look like, as we saw in section 94 about floor plans and 65 by 55 and inner court, outer court, upper court, lower court, uh, are really, we're really going to do this? And if you go back to the Temple of Solomon and this idea of cedar and gold that we talked about a few weeks ago, the, the effort that went into that one, but what was the goal? What did they want to construct for the Lord? Put it this way, what did they want to create for the Creator? That was Uncle Bill's concern. He's like, how? He who created the universe and I'm supposed to create something for him? I mean, Uncle Bill is incredibly talented as an architect, but but nobody beats the design of heaven. Well, in the case of the Temple of Solomon, there are two phrases, uh, both in, in the books of Chronicles, that describe the, the, the building that was finally constructed. I love this one. Second uh, Chronicles 2.9, For the house, this is Solomon speaking, For the house which I am about to build shall be wonderful great. Wonderful great? That's not even good grammar. But when, when it's talking about the house of God, you got to go beyond uh, everyday syntax. And then in 1 Chronicles 22.5, this is uh, speaking of King David, who's kind of laying it, all, laying it all out. His is the pattern of preparing. It says that the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnifical. Magnifical? That's not even a word. But again, when you're talking about the house of God, normal grammar and common vocabulary, it just... It's insufficient. You got to come up with new words. And so to build this house worthy of God's acceptance, worthy of God's presence, it's going to need to be exceeding magnifical and wonderful great. In fact, that, that, that exceeding magnifical verse ends with this statement about King David, who's, who's preparing the way. He said, I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. And that's an amazing phrase to describe what's going on in Kirtland. In the years leading up to the dedication that we'll study today, they prepared abundantly for this day. 
with an incredible amount of sacrifice. Like I said, 1833 when they start, 150 members in Kirtland, around 1300 by the time it's finished. But in that early day, of the 150 that were there, only 10 owned enough property even to be taxed by the city. And of those 150, guess how many architects? Zero. How many civil engineers? Zero. How many draftsmen, even just to draw up the plans? Zero. Thankfully, fairly early on in the construction process, uh, Artemis Millet, who was uh, an experienced mason, had joined the church and immigrated from Canada and brought his, his skill set, incredibly necessary skill set, to help build the temple. Truman Angel uh, comes aboard and joins in the work. He's the one that's going to be the architect for the Salt Lake Temple. But, by the, but back in Kirtland, he's just a carpenter's apprentice. In some ways, as he was helping build the Kirtland Temple, the Lord was helping to build him. You've got bigger temples yet to come, Truman. Brigham Young's uh, pr profession involved carpentry and, and windows. And so he and, and, a, and one of his brothers is, is building and installing the windows in the Kirtland Temple. I mean, it's all hands on deck. Uh, Joseph Smith himself is out in the quarry uh, working with the stone by hand and loading wagons. In fact, once every 10 days, this was a tithing of their time, Every single wagon in Kirtland was being used to haul stone from the quarry to the temple site. Uh, the sisters were involved uh, sewing or making carpets and sewing the veils of the temple and making clothes for the workmen. And even when so many of those workmen were absent during Zion's camp, I mean, talk about a, a halt to the construction. It's like most able-bodied men are now on this thousand-mile march to Missouri. And yet the sisters keep the work going. And the sisters are hauling stone, and the sisters are working in masonry. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing what's going on among the saints there in Kirtland. Children get involved. They're the ones gathering broken glass and broken china to mix in with the plaster to make the outside shine. The, the story in church history that we typically think is, oh, they, they were so focused on the temple that they would, they would break their, uh, they, they smash their china so they could mix it in. Well, A, hardly anybody had any china. They didn't have enough money to, to make it or to, to buy it. But it was the broken things, okay, that, that they were using. But again, what a beautiful, it's no less sacrificial in my book, but there's a beautiful metaphor there of the Lord taking broken things and making them beautiful. This is ashes to beauty. This is a burned down Provo tabernacle to become a glorious Provo city center temple. The cost of the temple was estimated at somewhere between forty and sixty thousand dollars, and that's in eighteen thirty three, four, five, six uh, funds. Now I did the math, and if you you see what inflation and what that would cost today, it's somewhere between one point three and two million dollars in our day. And again, if you're half a ward, if you're one hundred and fifty and soon to grow into oh a third of a stake. To, again, can you imagine your bishop in the early days, earlier days of the church where there would be building funds and we're going to build a chapel and the bishop or the stake president would come around and, and solicit funds from the members. Can you imagine if a bishop of a small ward were to say, we need to raise a million and a half dollars? What? When there was such poverty in Kirtland. I mean, the saints are already struggling. They were, they were trying to raise funds for Zion's camp. They're trying to purchase lands in Missouri. And on top of that, I mean, that, that was the, the, the boldness of what we saw a few weeks ago of, yeah, we need, to, we need to have a treasury and a treasurer. It's like, what are they going to put in it? Uh, there's no, 
we have nothing. And to see people oh, like, like Vienna Jacques, who gave all that she had to help build the kingdom. To see a John Tanner, a man of means, give all that he had to build the temple. It, it's incredible the level. We saw that earlier. That the house, need, the house needs to be built speedily by the tithing of my people. That it will be a place built by those who observe their covenants by sacrifice. And by the measure of the widow's might, I've heard it said, the Kirtland Temple was perhaps the most expensive religious structure ever built in American history. And it might even extend beyond American history. Uh, they had nothing, and yet they gave it all. They gave it all to God. You can only imagine then the pent-up emotion uh, that fills that place when they dedicate it on March 27, 1836. The, the story of the temple dedication is an incredible one in church history. One of my favorite accounts comes from Truman G. Madsen uh, in his famous uh, lectures on Joseph Smith. And he's got a whole lecture on the Kirtland Temple dedication and what a day of Pentecost it was. I mean, if you ever had the, the chance to, to pick a day of church history and go back in time and see it, there's a lot of good choices. Uh, but you couldn't go wrong if you picked March 27, 1836. To be there for the dedication of the Kirtland Temple would have been life-changing. It was for those that were present. The history of the church says, the congregation began to assemble at the temple at about 7 o'clock, an hour earlier than the doors were to be opened. Many brethren had come in from the regions round about to witness the dedication of the Lord's house and share in his blessings. And such was the anxiety on this occasion that some hundreds, probably five or six, assembled before the doors were opened. You ever been in an event like that where there was such anticipation that, that people are camping out uh, <laughs> in line before it comes? They didn't want to miss their chance to, be, to get inside. The account continues, the doors were then opened. Presidents Rigdon, Cowdery, and myself, this is Joseph writing, seated the congregation as they came in, and according to the best calculation we could make, we received between nine and ten hundred, which were as many as could be comfortably seated. And you'd probably need to put comfortably in quotes. If you've ever been inside the Kirtland Temple and picture a thousand people in here, seriously? Wow. How do you pack them all in? Joseph went on, we then informed the doorkeepers that we could receive no more. That would have been sad news. And a multitude were deprived of the benefits of the meeting on account of the house not being sufficiently capacious to receive them. And I felt to regret that any of my brethren and sisters could be deprived of the meeting. I recommended them to repair to the schoolhouse and hold a meeting, which they did, and filled that house also, and yet many were left out. In fact, uh, he felt so bad that people had to miss the dedication being in there uh, that they repeated the dedication service later in the week so people could be present and, and hear the dedicatory prayer and participate in, in the, the proceedings. Now on that original uh, dedication day, Joseph had said to them, if your children can be orderly, they can come too. They're just going to need to sit on your lap. Well, evidently the news that, hey, laps are available, uh, that spread. And according to some accounts, basically every seat held two people. It's like, oh, okay, now I'm getting how you could pack a thousand people in there. But you're stacking them up, okay? Everyone just wanted to be inside. Joseph had admonished them earlier, come prepared. Don't just come early, come prepared. And he promised, brethren, all who are prepared and are sufficiently pure to abide the presence of the Savior, will see him in the solemn assembly. Some testified that that's exactly what happened. 
And as we'll see in section 110, one week later, when Joseph and, and Oliver Cowdery are there, they behold the Lord as he comes to accept his temple too. Now this was a long day for the saints, but nobody seemed to complain. They started lining up at 7 a.m. The doors opened at 8. I believe the dedication began at 9. And it didn't end until 4. Okay? <laughs> wow. That's a long dedicatory service. There are, there's hymns and there's prayers and there are sermons being given. Not to mention the dedica dedicatory prayer itself that we'll see in, in section 109. There was a 20-minute intermission in the middle somewhere. But hardly anybody left. It's like, I'm going to lose my seat. <laughs> I'm staying put. After the dedicatory prayer was offered and they had the Hosanna shout, Eliza R. Snow remembered that it was so loud it felt like the roof was going to come off the place. Actually, it reminds me of the dedication of the Salt Lake Temple. Forty years of pent-up emotion. And when it was given, uh, Lorenzo Snow gave the instructions and he told the saints, this is a Hosanna shout. Sadly, in our day, I think sometimes we end up doing a Hosanna whimper because uh, we're a little, uh, really? I, this doesn't seem reverent. Well, it's reverent in a more <laughs> emphatic kind of way. It is, it is, oh, he's coming. This is the triumphal entry. This is Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem. This is waving palm branches, or in our cases, white handkerchiefs, and shouting, Hosanna, here comes the Lord. Uh, in, in Salt Lake, after uh, Lorenzo Snow explained it, he told the saints, give it all you've got. And they did. They'd given the temple all they had for 40 years, and now it's time to erupt forth in gratitude and praise that it's finished, and we can now enter and receive these blessings. And there were uh, people present that said, you could hear the sound of that Hosanna shout echoing off the mountains in the Salt Lake Valley. That, that would be another good day in church history to go back and visit. Incredible what's taking place. Uh, visions and manifestations and miracles that day. Some saw angels. Others heard heavenly singing. Joseph Smith and others saw such heavenly personages as John the Beloved and Peter. I mean, that evening, there was another meeting where 400 priesthood holders came into the temple. George A. Smith was there and uh, was speaking. And they said that a, a noise was heard like the sound of a rushing mighty wind, which filled the temple. And all the congregation simultaneously arose, being moved upon by an invisible power. Many began to speak in tongues and prophesy. Others saw glorious visions. At some point, people in the neighborhood rushed to the temple because they'd heard some sound there they didn't understand. It looked like there was fire on the temple. Some worried, is, is, has the building caught fire? Well, the Spirit of God like a fire was burning. W.W. Phelps wrote that hymn for that day, for the dedication of God's holy house. In fact, and this is one of my favorite details, that for weeks afterwards, there were saints in Kirtland that honestly thought the millennium had begun. It's like, we made it. The millennium is here. Because they were so oh, overwhelmed by the spiritual experience that nobody wanted to sin. And it felt like, hey, I don't know about you, but Satan's bound as far as I'm concerned. I haven't been tempted in weeks. Uh, kind of still riding this spiritual high. Yeah, I mean, Jesus had come to accept it, so there's a second coming, and Satan sure feels bound in my life. Uh, rude awakening to realize, oh, he didn't come to the whole world? This, this is not the official millennial reign? Well, oh well, I had a foretaste of it. Uh, and, and just to, to imagine what was taking place among the saints that had given their all to build God's house. God was giving them his all in return. That, to me, is what makes section 109's first word so beautifully profound. 
Because how does this dedicatory prayer begin? A prayer given by revelation to Joseph Smith? Well, it begins with this word. Thanks. Thank you, God, for the chance to sacrifice everything we have. Thank you for these years of labor and toil. Thank you for the opportunity to pinch pennies and to sacrifice anything we could. Thank you for the chance to, to consecrate ourselves and to be to blisters and, and bruises and, and broken wagons and just giving everything we can. Thank you for the, the persecution that surrounded us to, to prove to us just how important this temple was. I mean, there were days where they would sleep inside the walls of the temple and sleep with, with weapon in hand to try to keep the mobs from destroying that day's work. Days where it, was, it really was trowel in one hand and musket in the other. And sometimes one man would be working on the, the, the temple while three men armed with, with pistols were, were surrounding him. Uh, but thank you, God. Thank you for the chance to prove to you in some ways, it's like, what, it's the old saying, what do you give to somebody who has everything? What can you possibly give to God? And when they, when they help you know what they want, which they could surely get for themselves, but they give you a chance to be able to provide it for them. Thank you, God, for showing us something we can do to prove to you our love, to express our, our, our honor, our reverence, our worship, our praise. To me, whenever God asks you to do something hard and you've sacrificed for a calling or, or giving God your all, oh, we don't start with your welcome. We start with thanks. Thanks be to thy name, O Lord God of Israel, who keepest covenant and showest mercy unto thy servants, who walk uprightly before thee with all their hearts. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to walk uprightly. We're doing it as sincerely, as heartfelt as we can. But it's you who's kept your covenant. You promised that we would have this house. You promised to endow us with power from on high. And you're keeping your word. I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say. Well, you've been doing it. And of course, I will keep my promise. I am the word of God. He, he is showing mercy unto them. Verse 2, thou who hast commanded thy servants to build a house to thy name in this place, Kirtland, a house to thy name on the outside of every temple, typically etched in stone or, or gilt in gold, there is a statement that this is the house of the Lord and holiness to the Lord must reign there. In fact, must extend from there. It is a house dedicated to his name. Verse 3, And now thou beholdest, O Lord, that thy servants have done according to thy commandment. God, we did it. We, we, I, just, I sense that when something hard, and, and you finished it, and there is just this rejoicing. I mentioned that Hood to Coast relay race that my family did. And, and mo most of us that, that participated weren't big athletes, weren't big runners. Uh, several of my brother-in-law was like, well, of course, we're going to make it. I don't know about the rest of them. Uh, and, and just the outpouring of joy when we finally got to the beach and, and crossed the finish line. And everyone's just jumping in joy. Well, we, I don't know if we left the ground. We had no legs left. But just that we did it. We did it. And for these saints, Heavenly Father, thy servants have done according to thy commandment. And again, not a we did it, so you're welcome. 
but a we did it. So thank you for telling us what to do because it's made us into saints. We didn't just build the, the building. You built us in the process. And even, I'd forgotten to mention back in verse 1, O Lord God of Israel. I love that it's the God of Israel because temples and Israel are, are almost synonymous. To think of the Temple of Solomon, the Tabernacle of Moses, the Temple of Zerubbabel, the, the Temple of Herod that was, that was torn down when the Romans came. At a temple that Jesus uh, cleansed in turning over the tables of the money changers. As I've said this before, that if Catholicism and Protestantism had a child, it would be Mormonism. Uh, the proving of contraries between high liturgy and low liturgy. Well, same with if, if Judaism and Christianity were to have a child, it would be the restored gospel also. And if church is our Christian side, temple is our, our Jewish side. This house of God is being dedicated to the Lord God of Israel who commanded us to build it, and we did it. And we thank thee, Lord, for that. In verse 4, now the petitions be begin. And this is a long prayer. According to one of the a young women that was present, she said it was so long that there were people that would get up off their knees. They, they knelt for this. Uh, so if you really want, I mean, if you really want an experience for the rest of our lesson, get down on your knees on a hardwood floor. Uh, don't. But the, they were on, on their knees through the prayer, and it lasted so long that, that Mary Elizabeth, Elizabeth Rollins said that there would be people that would get up in the middle of the prayer and rub their knees uh, for some from relief, you know, achy bones, and then they'd get back down on their knees and fold their arms and bow their head uh, to resume the prayer. But she also said this about it, such a prayer I have never heard before or since. I felt he was talking to the Lord, and the power rested upon us all. Power indeed. Well, notice what they are asking for. I counted them up once, and I, I lost track after like a hundred different blessings Joseph was pleading to the Lord for. And like I said, this prayer was given by revelation. So in some ways, this is the Lord whispering into a child's ear, this is what you should say in your prayer. This is God saying, ask me for this, because I really want to give it to you. Well, the petitions begin in verse 4, And now we ask thee, Holy Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of thy bosom. What a beautiful mental image there of the Father throwing his arms around his only begotten and greatly beloved Son, the Son of his bosom. They're in his chest, just holding him close. That is the love between Father and Son. And we are praying to the Father in the name of that beloved Son, in whose name alone salvation can be administered to the children of men. Alone. There is no other name given under heaven whereby man can be saved, but by Jesus Christ. We learn that in Acts. We learn that in Mosiah. It's only through Jesus. And notice also, though, that salvation can be administered to the children of men. That's an amazing contrary, because on the one hand, there is the grace of Jesus Christ that comes unmediated. He is the mediator, and he's bringing God's love, but it's, you don't need ordinances to receive God's love. You, can, you don't need structures and, and formality and priesthood authority to feel close to a loving Father and a loving Lord. 
But there is a side, there's, there's this contrary being proven. There is this other side where ordinances are absolutely essential. That without being born of water into the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God, Jesus told Nicodemus. That there do need to be channels and, and structures and organizations and authority to administer the ordinances of salvation. And to see those combined, the temple is such an example of that. That without any uh, connection to the church organization, you can drive past the temple, you can enter in an open house and feel the grace of God, to feel the love of Jesus Christ. But it's also a place where you can enter and receive the ordinances of salvation. It's the place that makes those ordinances available to all of God's children who have ever lived including especially those that are on the other side, having passed on. And so it's his name alone, but salvation is administered to the children of men. Keep going in verse 4. We ask thee, O Lord, to accept of this house the workmanship of the hands of us, thy servants, which thou didst command us to build. Do you get a sense of their, their humility there? To me, it's almost like the brother of Jared molting out of uh, the rock these 16 stones and bringing them to the Lord. And just almost embarrassed by his own inadequacy, there's this, I know that our work, because of the fall, we're nothing. And the things that we do seem nothing to thee. But out of my nothingness, this is what I did. I know it probably looks completely stupid. But if you can just touch them. I'm getting more and more embarrassed just hearing myself say it. But if you can touch these rocks that I made, when I did molten them, I didn't just pick up pebbles. I, I made them transparent. I got as close as I can to a light bulb, but I can't infuse anything with light. But I know that thou canst. I mean, the church spares no expense when it comes to temples. Uh... The Kirtland Temple was the best they possibly could do. That was their version of cedar and gold. But, but it's nothing compared to the creation. This again was what is, I can still hear Uncle Bill just describing this feeling he had of how do I create something for the Creator? Well, it's the workmanship of, of us. It's the best we have. Please, Lord, accept it. And then not to excuse themselves, but perhaps just by way of explanation, this is what, these were our constraints. This is what we're up against. That's what, Le, what Nephi says in 2 Nephi when he builds the temple. And he says, we follow the, the pattern of the Temple of Solomon. Problem was, we just couldn't make it out of as nice of materials because we didn't have them here. We did the best that we could. And that's what the Lord, what the saints are describing here in verse 5. Thou knowest that we have done this work through great tribulation. There's trowel in one hand and, and gun in the other. And out of our poverty we have given of our substance. There's the measure of the widow's might. To build a house to thy name, that the Son of Man might have a place to manifest himself to his people. We had nothing, but we gave everything. Interesting that the temple would be a place of God's giving, an endowment. An endowment is a, is a gift, a gift that keeps on giving, that never runs out. And so for them to give out of, their tribula out of their poverty, and then God to reward that by giving out of his infinite abundance, for them to work through their tribulation to have a place where God could bless them with his peace. 
It's just interesting the juxtaposition of the circumstances on the outside compared to oh, the refuge that they would feel on the inside. But tribulation, indeed. Poverty, like you wouldn't believe it. I love what years later Brigham Young was reflecting on that. I mean, here's, here's the one. He's the one that's trying to encourage the saints to continue to sacrifice for a temple in, in Salt Lake, in St. George, in Manti, in Logan, those pioneer Utah temples. And reflecting back on the construction of the temple of Kirtland, he, he, puts, he sets the stage like this. We were too few in numbers, too weak in faith, and too poor in purse to attempt such a mighty enterprise. But they did. He said, they were a mere handful of men living on air. I just love that thought of, yeah, we had nothing. We were living on air. And a little hominy and milk and often salt or no salt when milk could not be had. The great prophet Joseph in the stone quarry, quarrying rock with his own hands. And the few then in the church following his example of obedience and diligence wherever most needed. That's part of our heritage, uh, manifest in the construction of every temple. And, and to maintain that level of obedience and diligence, even when you're living on air. Uh, what a legacy to, to, to hold on to. In verse 6, As thou hast said in a revelation given to us, calling us thy friends, saying, Call your solemn assembly, as I have commanded you. So he's, he's now reminding the Lord, or better yet, reminding the saints in the congregation, Do you remember when the Lord asked us to do this? This is back to section 88. To, to call your solemn assembly and prepare every needful thing and build a house. So he's reminding them. I also love, though, that he also remembers, remember you called us friends? Remember you like us? <laughs> remember you love us? Remember you, you, you let us know what you're doing? That's the difference between a friend and a servant. We're your friends. So we called our solemn assembly. Here we are in the midst of it. Verse 7, continuing to repeat these revelations. And as all have not faith, Seek ye diligently, and teach one another words of wisdom. Yea, seek ye out of the best books words of wisdom. Seek learning even by study, and also by faith. I mean, the second story of the Kirtland Temple, I mean, it's a little bit of everything. Remember, there were supposed to be three different buildings, a uh, temple, a, uh, there we're going to redeem the dead, though we don't know that yet, uh, a house for the first presidency to, to function. There's the perfect the saints. There's going to be a, a printing office so we can uh, print the, the words of God. There's going to be pr uh, proclaiming the gospel. And there's, of course, another separate a building. There's going to be the the bishop's storehouse so that we can care for the poor and the needy. There's our, our fourfold mission of the church. Uh, but the school of the prophets, where are they going to meet? Well, ultimately, they meet on the second story of the temple. The third, and there, there's a third story. They didn't call it that. It was the attic. Uh, but that became a place for the first presidency to function. So the, the temple is, is multi-purpose here. Okay? But to see the, the school of the prophets, particularly as a fulfillment of verse 7, we're going to study out of the best books. We're going to seek learning. We're going to do it by study. We're going to put in the effort. And also by faith. This is mental as well as spiritual exertion. Mind as well as heart. And we're going to teach one another. The temple was not just for ordinances. In fact, most of the ordinances we associate with the temple today weren't revealed until Nauvoo. When we think of endowment, the, the, the endowment was revealed in the Nauvoo period. This, they are being endowed with power from on high, but it is a preparatory endowment. It's more like the initiatory ordinances. 
washing of feet took place in the school of the prophets? Well, it was taking place in the temple as well. So to think of Kirtland as a preparatory temple with preparatory ordinances, a preparatory endowment, initiatory ordinances to be built upon once they build the temple of Nauvoo. But I also love the way that verse begins. As all have not faith. I spend so much of my time working with people that are struggling in their faith. And that doesn't put them on a lower level. It, it puts them in the midst of all of us. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. It puts us into a, the mortal condition where we live by faith instead of by sight. And, so, and I think if, to those who don't have faith, compared to the Lord, that describes all of us. So it's just a spectrum. Okay? And I might be stronger one day and weaker the next and vice versa. And I'll help you and you help me. But I love the thought of recognizing that not everyone around us has the faith that they would want to have or that the Lord would want any of us to have. And so help each other. Build a place of learning, of growth, of God. Try to learn as much as you can. Seek out of the best books, words of wisdom. Why? So you can help the people who are struggling. I had no idea when I began grad school that that would be the Lord's call to me, that Jared, for the next decade, <laughs> seek wisdom out of the best books. Learn as much as you can about, in your case, faith crisis and secularization and doubt and anti-religious ridicule and rhetoric and so that you can help people because not everyone has faith, but everyone can. That the temple is a place of learning, and it's a, a place to consecrate the learning that we have so we can help other people. He continues on, uh, quoting section 88, Organize yourselves, prepare every needful thing, and establish a house, even a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God. And there kneeling in it, as Joseph speaks. Oh, to, to be surrounded by an edifice that is dedicated to all of those things, prayer and fasting, faith and learning, glory and order, a house of God. It's, they're organized. The building is prepared. More than prepared, it's now complete. And they're giving it to God. Verse 9, that your incomings may be in the name of the Lord, that your outgoings may be in the name of the Lord, that all your salutations may be in the name of the Lord with uplifted hands unto the Most High. This is like the mezuzah on the, the, the side post of, of Jewish homes. I come in, I go out, I, 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 I salute other people, everything with God on my mind. Verse 10, and now, Holy Father, where we've reviewed the commandment and, and we've fulfilled it. And now we ask thee to assist us, thy people, with thy grace in calling our solemn assembly, that it may be done to thine honor and to thy divine acceptance. We're doing the best we can to keep your commandments. We followed, you, we followed the pattern in laying out and preparing the foundation. We followed the pattern in building it. Now we are trying to follow the pattern in dedicating it. And we ask for your assistance. We ask for an infusion of grace 
this enabling power so that we're able to offer you something worthy of your acceptance. In verse 11, in a manner that we may be found worthy in thy sight to secure a fulfillment of the promises which thou hast made unto us, thy people, in the revelations given unto us. This goes back to verse 1, right? We did everything we could to walk uprightly with all our heart, and we know that you will keep your covenant with us. That's the sense I get in verse 11 also. We help us be, help us hold up our end of the bargain. We know you'll hold up your end. Verse 12, that thy glory may rest down upon thy people and upon this thy house, which we now dedicate to thee, that it may be sanctified and consecrated to be holy and that thy holy presence may be continually in this house. There's something about a building once it is dedicated that it is no longer, oh, it, it is now sacred space. It has made this transition from a mere building to a house of God. To think about spiritual experiences in dedicating your own house and, and a difference in status. To me, it was interesting living in Jerusalem for five months. And you go to all of these places and say, I walked where Jesus walked. And then it's like, oh, actually, he walked probably about 20 feet below us through all these layers of, of architectural rubble over the centuries. Uh, there are a few places where it's like, no, they, these were the actual steps going up to the temple uh, in the days of, of Jesus. So he would have walked on these. But there's also this, oh, competition uh, between Catholicism and Protestantism on, oh, no, no, no. It's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Oh, no, it's not. It's the Garden Tomb. And uh, where was it? And I loved, honestly, one of my favorite places in Jerusalem was the Jerusalem Center. Uh, especially the main auditorium where we would have concerts and, and sacrament meetings, especially. Because I knew that there was a place that was dedicated by a prophet of God. A place that was designated by divine authority as sacred space. Well, the Kirtland Temple is now that. They are dedicating it to God. Uh, a place of thy presence. I mean, if you think, I remember uh, when I went into the Kirtland Temple and a beautiful tour provided by the Community of Christ, who now owns it, and, and to still feel that holiness, the sacredness of that place. We listened to their description of what took place there, and uh, I, I didn't know the, the religious makeup of, of my fellow pilgrims that happened to be there in the, in the audience in the tour. But at the end, they asked about, uh, for questions, and I don't remember if anybody had any, uh, and I just couldn't help myself. I finally raised my hand and said, well, not so much a question, but more of a request. I don't want to be inappropriate in any way, but since we're here in this room, would it be okay if we sang the Spirit of God like a fire is burning? I am assuming that there's other people in the, in, in the, in the audience that, that know the words. And very graciously, the tour guide said, oh, I think that would be, that would be wonderful. And so we looked up the, the words on our phone, pulled out hymn book, basically, and, and sang together that hymn in the, in the very room where it was first performed by an LDS choir, uh, probably joined by heavenly choirs above. It was an incredible experience, a place that was sanctified and consecrated to be holy, that thy holy presence could be here. Verse 13, that all people who shall enter upon the threshold of the Lord's house, they don't have to come inside, just put a foot in the door, may feel thy power 
and feel constrained to acknowledge that thou hast sanctified it, and that this is thy house, a place of thy holiness. And that's a sense you get with every temple open house. Just come in and sense the sacredness of this space. Recognize just how different it is. The Lord's strange act to do his strange work. Oh yeah, the temple is not what we thought it would be. It's not uh, a mega chapel. Uh, there was so much opposition to the, the, the Nashville temple. Uh, when I found out I was moving there on church assignment, I, I wanted to understand its history. And I learned that the church had the, the southern temples started with Atlanta and then went to, to Dallas. And then there was nothing in between for, for decades. And Nashville was going to be the next one. It was going to be a full-size temple. But there was so much opposition to it that the church finally said, fine, we, we can't build a temple here. You won't let us. At the time, I thought, those punk country music fans, what, what was wrong with, I don't know. And then I realized, oh, it wasn't the country music capital that was the problem. Nashville is also known as the Protestant Vatican. The headquarters of the Southern Baptists and the United Methodists and the Disciples of Christ is like, oh, okay, sorry, uh, George Strait uh, or Clint Black or, or whoever you are. I, I didn't mean to throw the country music artists under the bus. It was, it was staunch evangelical Protestantism saying we do not want a Mormon building here, not a temple, this place of permanence. That, that, that's Missouri for you. What, you're, not, you're not laying cornerstones here. Over our dead, well, over your dead body. Well, one of the things that the, that the locals said was, it's going to just disrupt traffic patterns, and we're not. You can't build one of your Mormon mega churches, and it's going to disrupt traffic all every Sunday. And it's like, no, that's actually what your mega churches do. Uh, the, a temple's not a mega church. We're not trying to pack it in for a big sermon. What we do here is different. It's ordinances. It's just a steady flow of worshipers that come and go throughout the week. It's not even open on Sunday. You can have the traffic, you can have the streets to yourself. Ironically, in Nashville to this day, the site that the church was going to build the full-size Nashville temple on, I think there's a mega church just kitty corner across it, a Protestant mega church. And yes, they have to get uh, police help to to deal with traffic issues on Sundays. Uh, now the temple's different, and those who enter into the threshold, if that's as far as they go, those that drive by, those that pull into the parking lot and look, what is this? Those in Washington D.C. that are that are cruising th around the Beltway and then just come around the corner there in Maryland and see as if it were rising out of the forest. This incredible. I heard that uh, President Clinton loved to fly past the, the Washington, D.C. temple in Marine One on, as he was coming back to, to the White House. Uh, just there's something different about this place. Oh, different indeed. And there are those who are constrained to acknowledge. Remember we saw that earlier, that people would see Zion and admit this really is the, how, the city of our God. Even if it's not our city, it sure seems like it's God's city. And I just want to live like they do. Even if I don't believe everything they believe, there is that holy envy that, that from, a, from a sanctified people, a, a holy group of, of people who are truly choosing God, and for those to acknowledge God's presence and power because they recognize it there. I, I think there is 
beautiful, holy envy of temples. In fact, when Christopher Stendhal, the great Harvard, uh, dean of the Harvard Divinity School and Lutheran Bishop of Stockholm in Sweden, it was in the context of the construction of the Stockholm Sweden temple with all the local Lutherans up in arms against, no, we can't let the Mormons build their temple here, that their religious leader at the time said, well, let's think about holy envy here because I have some holy envy for what the Latter-day Saints do inside. To, to extend the blessings of salvation, the, the, the blessings of Christ's grace to loved ones who have gone on before, he said very humbly, I could see myself doing something like that. I could, I could see myself wanting to. There, there is an acknowledgement. There's something different about this place. So verse 14, Do thou grant, Holy Father, that all those who shall worship in this house may be taught words of wisdom out of the best books, and that they may seek learning even by study and also by faith, as thou hast said. The thing about the temple uh, that confuses so many people the first time is that God has always been our teacher at church, but he teaches us more in our way at church. It's pretty straightforward. It's the Western mind, okay? Uh, clarity. Whereas in the temple, it's still the Lord teaching, but now he gets to teach in his way which is symbolic. It's the Eastern mind. Uh, it's high liturgy instead of low liturgy. It's the Catholic side of church rather than the Protestant side of church. And to go to the temple as a house of learning and to try to understand the endowment, the symbolism behind what we see and what we say, what we hear, what we wear, uh, what we do. Every I remember a little... Uh, temple prep class that my Uncle Mike, Mike Wilcox, uh, who wrote the book on it, uh, House of Glory, is still one of my favorite books on temple preparation and temple symbolism and personal meaning in the temple. There's a lot of other good books that have been written on it since, but that is such a, a, a classic in my mind. And so Uncle Mike sat my, me down and my sister down and my cousin down. And we were all preparing for missions and, and receiving our endowment. And, and the, one of the things I remember best from what he said was, when you go into the temple, imagine getting a pair of glasses and writing the word symbol across each lens. And before you enter the temple, put those glasses on so that everything you see has symbol written all over it. You look at something on the wall and go, oh, that says symbol on it. You look at some, oh, there's symbol there. And you look at your clothing, oh, there's symbolic. That everything has a meaning beyond the surface level. And think hard about it. Uh, to, to think of, in fact, I remember he and my Aunt Laurie were the witness couple when my sister and I received our endowment. And, and there in the celestial room, when we were there, he, Uncle Mike just started to explain some of the insights he'd received over the years as he had paid a price of study and faith to understand what God was teaching him. At one point he said, this one took me 17 years to figure out. And I remember thinking, and I'm getting it the first day? Whoa, thanks for the head start, Uncle Mike. Uh, and there were some profound insights into the symbolism of the endowment. And at the time I remember thinking, will I ever have a 17-year insight? Something that takes me that long before it finally clicks and makes sense? You know, actually right before COVID, I was in the temple in an endowment session Something I've done hundreds, hundreds, I don't know, maybe a thousand times. No, probably not a thousand. I, I got to keep working. 
but so many endowment sessions through a lifetime. And because of a lot of things I'd been studying about the process of faith loss and faith regain, these stages that we go through of, of perceiving things, at a certain moment in the endowment, everything just fell into place. There was this click almost. And based on the things I was studying out of the best books uh, academically, but being there in God's house and seeing the order of a certain, of a certain thing, it blew me away. And it's like, that, that's exact. no way. I wish I could explain it right now. Uh, I save that for sacred places, I suppose. But what was amazing was, I think I'd been endowed for, what, 24 years by then, give or take. And to receive a revelation, an insight, an understanding that was decades in the making, oh, that is a place where you can seek learning all, even by study and also by faith, just like God said. Verse 15, my favorite phrase in the entire dedicatory prayer. And that they may grow up in thee and receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost. And be organized according to thy laws and be prepared to obtain every needful thing. There's one thing to organize themselves and prepare every needful thing. It's now organized, but we still want to be organized according to your law. We still want to be prepared to obtain every needful thing. But it's those first phrases to grow up in God, to receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost. We learned back in section 84 that the light of Christ is given to every man that cometh into the world. But that's that initial level. You have a conscience. You have the light of Christ. Well, as, you, as we come unto, God, unto Christ and continue in God, that light groweth brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. That was section 50, right? Uh, by the time you're eight, at least, uh, or you've made covenants with Christ through baptism, then you can be confirmed and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, the promise of his constant companionship. So now we go from light of Christ. Somewhere along the way, we are being influenced by the Spirit. Non-members can feel the Holy Ghost, definitely. That, what, what do you think draws them into a covenant relationship? How do they gain a testimony otherwise? So at light of Christ to influence of the Spirit to gift of the Holy Ghost, but are we done? We were told to receive it, but is that just a one and done? I got the gift and I'm there? Not according to this verse. To receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost suggests that we, prior to that, are living on a partialness, a partness of the Holy Ghost. It's a dimmer switch, not just an off and on. And how bright is that light in our lives? How well do we discern between our thoughts and the Lord's thoughts? Are we growing up in God? We saw in earlier revelations, you are little children, and you cannot bear all things now. But be of good cheer, for I will lead you along. That's what he's trying to do. And as we grow up in God, I see it in my institute students all the time, because they're in that stage of transitioning from teenagehood to young adulthood. They're in the decade of decisions as they're deciding what they'll be when they grow up. And there are growing pains. And there are, oh, grind it till you find it as you're trying to make sense of, of, I mean, the fact that adulting has become a verb now instead of just adult as a noun, it's a hard thing. And the rising generation is struggling with that. Well, we all are, spiritually speaking, as we try to grow up in God. 
sometimes I'll have someone in my office just, oh, venting or frustrated or anxious and concerned about their spiritual state because it just it doesn't feel like I'm doing it right. It's like I've backslid since my mission. Well, how's the growing up process going for you? Because that's all that's happening. We are hopefully growing up in God. That's, that's perpetual progress. That's eternal increase. That is the stages of faith. Oh, there, there's such power there to know that we, spiritually speaking, we're, we're older than we were yesterday. At least we're supposed to be. So grow up in God. Verse 16, and that this house may be a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of glory and of God. Even thy house, we just want to do what you've asked us to, that all the incomings of thy people into this house may be in the name of the Lord, that all their outgoings from this house may be in the name of the Lord, that all their salutations may be in the name of the Lord, with holy hands uplifted to the Most High. I mean, Joseph is trying to be as, as exact he, he is doing precisely what the Lord had asked in that previous revelation. When we go in, may we be holy. When we come out, may we be holy. May the temple change us. Verse 20, that no unclean thing shall be permitted to come into thy house to pollute it. There's the cherubim checking our recommend at the door. 21, when thy people transgress, any of them, and notice it's a when, not an if, we're all imperfect, that they may speedily repent and return unto thee, and find favor in thy sight, and be restored to the blessings which thou hast ordained to be poured out upon those who shall reverence thee in thy house. To be restored to the blessings when they repent? This goes back to that idea of being restored to grace for grace that's taught in the book of Helaman. That we can get back into that cycle, that the moment we repent is the moment we begin to prevail. Immediately doth the plan of salvation begin to work for you instead of against you. I love that, that's, that feeling in verse 21. I know we're going to mess up. Nobody makes it through life without it other than Jesus, the son of thy bosom. No wonder he belongs in that divine embrace. But when we come to our senses, when we return to thee, please bless us. This is the prodigal son hoping that he can come home. Oh, surprised by joy when he realizes that the father isn't just going to send him to the servants' quarters, but has a robe and a ring and a fatted calf just waiting. That's the promise of a merciful Lord. And that's the promise of the temple. There's a verse in Ezekiel that I absolutely love. Ezekiel speaks of the temple often. I mean, they are off in enemy territory, trapped in Babylon. The temple has been destroyed. You know, get why that's on the prophet's mind often? And he has a vision of the temple and sees healing waters coming forth from it. But he also, he's told this, and this, this one fascinates me. It reminds me of verse 21. If you want to put a cross-reference in your margin, it's Ezekiel 43, 10 and 11. And the Lord says to the prophet, Thou son of man, show the house to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the pattern there's patterns always come up when we're talking about temples. And so what, what's the Lord asking Ezekiel to do? If, if the house of Israel has sinned, show them the temple so they can be ashamed of their own iniquity. It's like, wait a minute, if the temple is a pattern, in fact, temple is where the word template comes from. It's the same idea. And so it's a pattern. 
the, the, the temple itself, Hugh Nibley used to talk about this, the temple is a scale model of the universe, uh, complete with star stones and moonstones and sunstones in some cases, like Nauvoo and Salt Lake. Uh, but you get your, your bearings in the temple. There's a telestial, a terrestrial and celestial. We are ascending to, back to God. We are entering his presence. And so the temple really is a template for our life, a pattern. And it's as perfect as, as engineers and architects and, and, and contractors can make it. It's, it's temple-level construction, far beyond even chapel level, uh, let alone house construction. But what's interesting about that idea is, as Ezekiel's being taught, if, you, if the people are in sin, show them the standard that they're falling short of. Or even if you think you're doing pretty well, but you're really not, then compare yourself, your personal construction, to temple construction. And when you compare that, you will, you'll lose in the comparison. And that's a good thing, because it'll humble you. It will, it will bring about a broken heart and a contrite spirit. It'll help you see where you're falling short. But he doesn't stop there. And it's the next part that I, that I love even more. Because if, if the picture of the temple shows you where you've fallen short, then the picture of the temple will also give you hope that you can change. And that's what the Lord says to Ezekiel next. And if they be ashamed of all that they have done, that the picture of the temple did its work, then show them the form of the house and the fashion thereof and the going out thereof and the coming in in thereof. Can you get the outgoings and the incomings in the name of the Lord? And all the forms thereof and all the ordinances thereof and all the forms thereof and all the laws thereof and write it in their sight that they may keep the whole form thereof and all the ordinances thereof and do them. Now that, that's an odd... When I first read that, it was strange where it's like, wait, you're showing them the picture of the temple twice? Well, yeah. Because the first one is to give them humility, and the second one is to give them hope. This is where you've fallen short, and this is where the Lord is trying to raise you back up. I know that every bishop is seeking divine inspiration, and there are times where a temple recommend needs to be uh, removed. Because someone, and we have to go back to verse 20 on that, no unclean thing should be permitted to come in to pollute it. But on the other hand, uh, there are... A bishop can be inspired, or a stake president can be inspired. I know there are things you need to work on. You've recognized that. Even in this temple-recommended interview, there's a sense on your part, or admission, or confession, that compared to temple and temple worthiness, you realize your shortcomings. But with your humility, your meekness, this broken heart and contrite spirit, I honestly think you need more of the temple, not less. You need more of the sacrament, not less. Again, I trust the discernment of those judges in Israel with priesthood keys. And there are times that, no, you need to be withheld this blessing so you can repent and work towards receiving it yet again. It will mean more to you when you can return. But there are other times where, look at the temple, see where you fall short, and look at the temple again. Go there, recognize the power that God is trying to offer. Or even just drive past and sit in the parking lot and see, that's my new goal, to get back to this place. I just talked with a wonderful, a wonderful man who's had a very hard life, partly because of his choices, partly because of the choices of others. And to see just how much he loves the Lord 
and is being changed by him. Major changes in attitude and outlook and in, in character and, and in covenant. And he just, he wants to be rebaptized after having been excommunicated. He wants to come home. He wants to go to the temple. He wants to serve there. Seeing it the first time made him realize, I need to change, even though that includes a, an excommunication. But, but that's my goal again. And I know I can get there with the Lord's help, with thy grace assisting us. It's such a beautiful promise that we can come home we can find favor in his sight and be restored to those divine blessings. Verse 22, And we ask thee, Holy Father, that thy servants may go forth from this house armed with thy power, and that thy name may be upon them and thy glory round about them and thine angels have charge over them. Oh, that sounds like the promise in an earlier revelation that President Monson always talked about, of the Lord being on our right hand and our left and before our face and angels round about us to, to bear us up. That's the promise of being endowed with power from on high, to be armed with thy power. Trowel in one hand and pistol in the other. Oh, it, there's some arming going on at the temple, but this is the kind the Lord is after. Uh, I remember it being said when the temple was built in Manhattan. And Manhattan is a loud place, lots and lots of street noise. Uh, but not inside the temple. And as they described the construction, that there was almost a temple within the temple, that there was kind of the exterior walls, but then an inner court, so to speak, and some space in, in between that provided some, some sound insulation. And then the part that was most fascinating to me, it said that there were, they made as few connection points as possible between the outside and the inside walls, because uh, sound would, would carry. And it reminded me of a statement that President Kimball once made, that temples are built with thick walls to keep the world out. And just this idea of having as few connection points. To be in the world, yeah, we have to be, but not of it. And to limit our connection points so that there is a buffer, some insulation between the, the world's wicked sounds and influences. Well, here... To have God's glory round about us, there just seems to be this layer of protection. I feel that way when I go to the temple, and it feels like every time I come out, I have one more layer on. I'm a wimpy Southern California, and I don't like cold. Okay? Under like 60 degrees, it's time to bring in the animals and hunker down for the winter. Uh, but it's all about layers, they say. And if you have enough layers, you'll be warm no matter what the conditions on the outside. I guess I just need more layers. In the temple, I've received, every time I go, I feel like I've been given another layer of protection. As I emerge, that my outgoings may be in the name of the Lord, I just feel like there's another layer of protection against worldly influence. And with that layer, what am I ready to do? Verse 23, And from this place they may bear exceedingly great and glorious tidings, in truth, unto the ends of the earth, that they may know that this is thy work, and that thou hast put forth thy hand to fulfill that which thou hast spoken by the mouths of the prophets concerning the last days. What do missionaries do before they go into the field? They receive their endowment. What do spouses do before they enter into a covenant of marriage and go into the world to create a family of their own? They receive their endowment. 
uh, even Zion's camp. You're not ready to, to redeem Zion. You've got to be endowed with power from on high first. You're not ready to cross the plains and go to Utah. We've got to finish the Nauvoo Temple so we can be endowed with power, sealed as families, given God's uh, strength to be able to go forward. From this place, may they go forth and bear these great and glorious tidings. 24, we ask thee, Holy Father, to establish the people that shall worship and honorably hold a name and standing in this thy house to all generations and for eternity. I mean, talk about deep foundation stones. To establish them, that they can honorably hold a name and a standing forever, for eternity, them and their generations. Didn't Elder Bednar give a talk about this in General Conference, what it means to have a name and standing there? I love walking in to the temple and giving that cherubim, my, te my temple recommend, and so often when they hand it back, they just say, welcome to the temple, Brother Halverson. And though I don't know them personally, typically, I just love that they call me by name and welcome me there. I don't know if you've ever been to a place uh, so often, maybe it's a restaurant, uh, and you go there so frequently that when you walk in, they're like, hey, how are you? I had a student that worked at a restaurant that my wife and I would go to often, and we always ordered the same thing because it was amazing. And whenever we'd go, he'd just look and go, hey, Halverson Special? And I'd smile and go, yeah, Halverson Special. And he, he knew just what we wanted, and he'd make it just right. Uh, and, and I just thought, man, that's kind of a nice feeling to walk into a place and be recognized and known. Oh, we were expecting you. Imagine if that's the temple. And those who go often enough to be known, that you have a name there, that you have a standing, it's like, oh, must be Friday morning because Jeremy's here in the temple again. Uh, it must be Tuesday evening because, you know, so-and-so is here to do initiatories yet again. Uh, there's just something beautiful about a name and a standing. Actually, it reminds me of one of my favorite passages in Isaiah 56. When the Lord speaks of the eunuchs in Israel, in other words, someone that can't have children in a, in, a, in a people for whom children mean everything. I always think of singles in what we consider a family church. Or my LGBTQ brothers and sisters that wonder, will I ever have a place in the church when I can't have a family like everyone else does? Uh, my heart goes out to them, as does the Lord's. And in Isaiah 56, speaking to anyone who feels marginalized, you, you can summarize, you can embody the whole group with that metaphor, a eunuch in the house of Israel. But the, what, the, what the Lord promises those eunuchs who lay hold of the covenant, who honor the Sabbath, who against the odds decide, I still want to be a part of God's chosen people, and I will keep those commandments even when I have to observe those, those commandments by sacrifice. Uh, I, against the odds, I will be faithful. And what's the promise to them when it seems like the promises everybody other, that everyone else gets are off limits? Isaiah 56, 5, Even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls, so this is a temple text, this is where these blessings can be promised you, I will give them a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. You see, that was the concern of the eunuchs. I'll have no posterity. So my name will be cut off in 
Israel. I won't be remembered. And yet the Lord is saying, no, no, no. You will be remembered. Your name will not be cut off. It will be an everlasting name. Think about those, the temple work we do where names that have not been uttered for centuries are pronounced, sometimes mispronounced too, but we, say, we, we invoke their identity. We call them by name. They are remembered within God's house, within his walls. And what's the promise he makes to them? Something better. He doesn't tell us what it is. I hope we're okay with that. Uh, we probably wouldn't be able to wrap our hearts and minds around it anyway, right? Eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man that which God hath prepared for them that love him. Well, for those that are keeping the commandments against the odds, those that I'll, I'll never have children the way others have children, or I'll never be part of a family the way others are part of a family, anyone who feels left out, the temple is your reassurance that you'll never be left out eternally. And that God has prepared something better for you than sons and daughters. Which I can't even imagine what that would be. But God does. And what does he promise? In his house, within his walls, a place and a name. Or as we see in section 109, a name and a standing. It's a standing. It's like, I have standing here. This is my place. It's all... It's. It, it's like having a parking space with your name on it. It's reserved for you. You have standing here. And that place and name, by the way, the word that's in Hebrew used there can also mean a hand and a name, which should tell us something about endowment temple symbolism too. We'll th think that one for a while, ponder. But what also amazes me about it is in Israel where they have a Holocaust museum, there are Holocaust museums all around the world, but you'd assume that the one in Israel would be one of the best, and it is. And guess what it's called? The name of it in Hebrew is Yad Vashem, which means a place and a name. They named their Holocaust museum after that passage in Isaiah 56. That people who we can't name anymore, there's no name on a gravestone, there are six million remains in unmarked graves. But they're not forgotten by God. God has a place and a name for them. And the, the ultimate place where that, where that name will be uttered, where that person will be remembered, is in the house of God. The, the temple is what makes wrong things right. The temple is where the fall can be fully reversed. The temple is where the atoning grace of Jesus Christ can be administered to all of God's children. The temple is where the umbrella of God extends to the utmost reach of the redemption of Christ. That no one is left out. Everyone will have a name and standing there. It's, it's breathtaking what the temple does. Verse 25, that no weapon formed against them shall prosper, that he who diggeth a pit for them shall fall into the same himself. There's the opposition against which that they, they, they fought to be able to build this place. 26, that no combination of wickedness shall have power to rise up and prevail over thy people upon whom thy name shall be put in this house. 
no combination. Book of Mormon keeps talking about secret combinations and to think about a combination of things, all these things coming together, combining against me. And you think of in the book of Revelation, the beast and the, the whore and the merchant city and all these things, the political aspect, the ideological aspect, the economic aspect combining against me. Ah, oh, there's no escape. Well, the temple is your escape that we can overcome whatever combination of wicked influences there is, we'll have God's name upon us, and with that name we will prevail. That's a word President Nelson has put back into our vocabulary. And God will prevail in our lives the moment we allow him to, as Israel. In 27, and if any people shall rise against this people, and that's been happening to the saints all over the place, Kirtland, Missouri, everywhere in between, that thine anger be kindled against them. This would be righteous indignation here. God, please come and, and avenge thy people. We've turned enough cheeks. We've lived the just war theory, and we need thy help. We, we've tried to seek redress from the judge and the governor, and soon enough that we'll go to the president himself. But none of that is working. We, we trust in thee. Wilt thou fight our battles for us? course he will. He promised. Verse 28, if they shall smite this people, thou wilt smite them. Thou wilt fight for thy people as thou didst in the day of battle, that they may be delivered from the hands of all their enemies. He continues this theme in 29. We ask thee, Holy Father, to confound, to astonish, to bring to shame and confusion all those who have spread lying reports abroad over the world against thy servant or servants, if they will not repent when the everlasting gospel shall be proclaimed in their ears. There's always that promise of repentance held out. There's justice, but there's always mercy waiting in the wings. And this idea, I mean, the, the Ibrahim D. Howe book, uh, Mormonism Unveiled, Dr. Philastus Hurlbut getting those affidavits and spreading lies through the, the, the Painesville Telegraph right there outside Kirtland. So much anti-Mormonism opposition that is spreading. And they're just praying, Heavenly Father, confound it, astonish it. They're trying to shame us. Please bring shame upon their efforts. And bring honesty in the place of these lying reports. Verse 30, And that all their works may be brought to naught, and be swept away by the hail and by the judgments which thou wilt send upon them in thine anger, that there may be an end to lyings and slanders against thy people. You sent the hail and the rain and the storm to save Zion's camp there in between the branches of the fishing river. You turned back the mob there. Wilt thou do that again? Whatever mob, whatever war of words, whatever tumult of opinions, whatever, like Joseph said in the, in the first verse of Joseph Smith history, to disabuse the public mind. Lord, please help us disabuse them because the, the, mind, the public mind has been abused against thy servants. 31, for thou knowest, O Lord, that thy servants have been innocent before thee in bearing record of thy name, for which they have suffered these things. Blessed are you if they persecute you falsely, if they, if they say all manner of evil against you for my sake. Well, they're, they're seeking those promised blessings. 32, therefore we plead before thee for a full and complete deliverance from under this yoke. Break it off, O Lord, break it off from the necks of thy servants by thy power that we may rise up in the midst of this generation and do thy work. We can't do it. 
We're not doing as well as we must. We can't rise up because we are being pressed down by this yoke of persecution and affliction. Please help us. Remove those obstacles. Remove the encumbrances we saw in a previous revelation. Verse 34, O Jehovah, have mercy upon this people. And as all men sin, forgive the transgressions of thy people. Let them be blotted out forever. Now some have, have wondered, wait a minute, O Jehovah? I, 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 Jehovah is Christ. He's the God of the Old Testament. We're supposed to pray to the Father in the name of Christ. Well, Joseph knows that. That's what he does back in verse 4. We ask the Holy Father in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of thy bosom. Well, what's this then, O Jehovah? Well, there is that instance in 3 Nephi when the Nephites are praying to Jesus because he's with them. I wonder if there's something similar here. Uh, the Lord there to accept his house. It'll be obvious that he does that one week later. Uh, we'll see in section 110. But there's also... Can it be an inclusion, not, not a, a shift and a new exclusion of the Father? They're not shifting gears and, well, I pray to the Father, now I'm going to pray to the Son. But a, a prayer to the Father can include gratitude for the Son. It's God the first and God the second, uh, and the Spirit, God the third. That there is, uh, some have suggested it's just divine investiture of authority. Uh, I don't know if this is an, a case of that, but just including... If there's ever a day that the Son would be alongside the Father, it would be this. If there was ever a prayer, I mean, Jesus is the one who delivers these prayers to the Father. Uh, that's why we pray in his name. Well, along the way, I mean, I even started in verse 1, the Lord God of Israel. Well, that, that was Jehovah, uh, our great intermediary between us and the Father. So, Jehovah, have mercy upon this people. And since Christ is the embodiment of that mercy, it does seem fitting to include him in this portion of the prayer. Verse 35, Let the anointing of thy ministers be sealed upon them with power from on high. When we give priesthood blessings, uh, typically one Melchizedek priesthood holder will anoint the person with consecrated oil, and then the other will seal that anointing. Well, the way he puts it here, praying to the Lord to, to seal the anointing of the ministers, there seems to be the suggestion that we have anointed one another. But God, will you seal the anointing? Which means you're also voice to the blessing that will be pronounced upon them. I, I love that thought of we extend callings, we serve one another, we are the anointers, but God is the sealer of the anointing and the source of the ultimate blessing. 36, let it be fulfilled upon them as upon those on the day of Pentecost. Let the gift of tongues be poured out upon thy people, even cloven tongues as of fire, and the interpretation thereof. And let thy house be filled as with a rushing mighty wind with thy glory. That's all Acts chapter 2. And to see the miracle of, of the Spirit being poured out, I think we underestimate the, the, the glory of that gift. When in the Last Supper, Jesus recognizes the sorrow on the face of his apostles, and he says, I, I, I'm leaving, and I know that you're, you're heavy laden, you're troubled by that, but let your hearts be comforted. My peace I leave with you. And then he says, because if I don't leave, then the Spirit can't come. For whatever reason, during Christ's mortal ministry, the, the gift of the Holy Ghost was not fully functioning. I don't know if it's a one member of the Godhead at a time. I, I don't know. But... 
but I, to me, there, it says something about the power and importance of the Holy Ghost that Jesus himself would say, I'm going to leave so that he can come. That was John the Baptist to his disciples, right? I must decrease because the Lord must increase. Now, that's not exactly what the Lord is saying, but in a way, it's I will leave so the Spirit can come. And he comes on the day of Pentecost. And if you reread Acts chapter 2 and see the, the cloven tongues of fire, you hear the, the, the voice, the, the gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues, as people from all nations are hearing the gospel in their own language, as they're being taught where they fell short and how they can come back up as they learn of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening in the Kirtland Temple, a day of Pentecost for the early church. I mean, even the language of a, the sound of a rushing mighty wind. Just last night I was teaching a class for my stake and, and it was interesting, the, it was hot in the chapel where we meet. And so I went over to the AC thing on the wall and, and punched it in to crank it up. To, and immediately there was the sound of a rushing mighty wind. Uh, as those air conditioning units fired on and started to change the environment, to, to affect uh, an alteration of temperature. And, there, and I just chuckle like, oh, there's the sound of the rushing mighty wind. It happened right then. And in this context, to think of a change of spiritual temperature, to see the Spirit of God like a fire is burning. I guess it's the heater, not the air conditioner. Uh, but to just sense the Spirit of God rushing in to fill the hearts of those who were present. Verse 38, Put upon thy servants the testimony of the covenant, that when they go out and proclaim thy word, they may seal up the law and prepare the hearts of thy saints for all those judgments thou art about to send in thy wrath upon the inhabitants of the earth because of their transgressions, that thy people may not faint in the day of trouble. I mean, for the next eight or nine verses or so, he's going to talk about tribulation. He's going to talk about God pouring out his judgments. I mean, we've got to keep this in mind that this is a second coming context. All of the Doctrine and Covenants is. Well, all of the latter days are as we're preparing the earth for the second coming. But the, the judgments that are being poured out beforehand, that's what they're trying to prepare the world for. We're going to seal up the law. It's like it's a closed case. We're closing the books on this. We're packing up and ready to go. So seal up the law. Prepare the hearts of those. We don't want the saints to faint through all of these things. But we also don't want the rest of the world to suffer. No wonder we're going out our outgoings in the name of the Lord, having been endowed with power on high, so we can bear these great and glorious tidings to people, so that they can repent and avoid the judgments. 39, whatsoever city thy servant shall enter, and the people of that city receive their testimony, that's the best case scenario, let thy peace and thy salvation be upon that city, that they may gather out of that city the righteous, that they may come forth to Zion or to her stakes, the places of thine appointment with songs of everlasting joy. And until this be accomplished, let not thy judgments fall upon that city. It's like, please give us time, Father. I know you're trying to hasten the work. I know you're trying to shorten it, to cut it short in its time. But will thou extend the day, prolong their chance to repent? Please give us time to prepare them. Uh, prepare them against these judgments. Because if they'll receive our testimony then peace and salvation can reign there. In fact, we can gather them out, since not everyone will listen, to gather out the righteous. That's Jeremiah's words, right? The hunters and fishers going out there and the hills and the mountains and the holes of the rocks to gather them out, 
uh, one of a city and two of a family and bring them to Zion. This is the parable of the wheat and tares. They're growing up together, but as we approach harvest time, judgment day, we will gather out the wheat and bring them into the garner. They're kneeling in the garner right then. The garner of God, the temple, the place of safety, protection from the storm outside. And once they're gathered out, then the, the tares can be bound in bundles and burned. And, and that's what we're trying to prepare the world against. 41 describes that other side of things. Whatsoever city thy people shall enter, and the people of that city receive not the testimony of thy servants, and thy servants warn them. So this is now the tares. And thy servants warn them to save themselves from this untoward generation. It's like flee Babylon. We'll see that in section 133. Come out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, save yourselves. Let it be upon that city according to that which thou hast spoken by the mouths of thy prophets. But deliver thou, O Jehovah, we beseech thee, thy servants from their hands and cleanse them from their blood. We are going to go in, kind of cross enemy lines, into enemy territory, to try to gather out the righteous. This is a commando mission because it's a rescue mission. Please save as many as you that will, as are willing to be saved. And please save us. No one left behind, but please keep us clean from the blood and sins of this generation. 43, O Lord, we delight not in the destruction of our fellow men. Their souls are precious before thee, and therefore precious before us. That's why we're trying to go and cry repentance. We're not, get them! There's not none of that... Fiddling while Rome burns here. Uh, it's not they're getting what they deserve. It's, Lord, I know justice must be administered, but please give us time to try to administer mercy and, and, and gather the righteous to Zion. Verse 44, But thy word must be fulfilled. We, we understand and honor that. So help thy servants to say, With thy grace assisting them, Thy will be done, O Lord, and not ours. By, by our very nature, we err on the side of, of mercy. And so if people are not willing to accept that mercy and justice is all that's left of them, that's hard for us. It's interesting to see people struggling with the church's stand on, on gay marriage, for example, and how we navigate LGBT issues. Uh, Elder Holland's recent talk at BYU, it was so hard for so many to hear. And... And it's, our, it's our, one of our strengths that's making it difficult, not just one of our weaknesses. It's the love that we have. It's the, the mercy, the goodness of God that we're trusting in. But as we've seen so many times in the Doctrine and Covenants and throughout Scripture, God is proving the contrary. He walks the line perfectly and is asking us to offend neither the Lord of love nor the Lord of law. That's hard. It's hard for for kind-hearted saints especially. It's hard for, for people of empathy and compassion and understanding. If it's not hard for you, you might need to rethink, are you too much on the side of law and truth instead of love and tolerance? We, you might be a little out of kilter here to the point that we would need to pray as they did when, when justice has to be administered and a law must be kept 
please help us, Father, with thy grace assisting to, uh, for us to say thy will be done. If you're struggling out of compassion, I was just talking to a student yesterday about this, who was struggling because of the goodness of her heart. This is a prayer that she should and we all should be offering. Heavenly Father, I know justice has to be served in this case, or I know that law has to be honored. So help me accept that. If I'm leaning too far towards mercy and love, which is a good, a good way to lean, but God is trying to get us to overcome leaning at all, because leaning away from God's law his truth, his commandments, that's, again, he doesn't want a lean. He wants us to stand on the straight and narrow. He wants us to develop the core strength that a gymnast has that keeps them on a balance beam that is getting narrower and narrower. That's a prayer worth offering. Help us trust your, your commandments. Help us accept thy will instead of our own. Verse 45 we know that thou hast spoken by the mouth of thy prophets terrible things concerning the wicked in the last days, that thou wilt pour out thy judgments without measure. It's what Elder Maxwell described as justifying a shudder of the soul, that that justice is, can be concerning. Uh, they're terrible judgments. 46, therefore, O Lord, deliver thy people from the calamity of the wicked. This is the abomination of desolations in the last days. Enable thy servants to seal up the law Bind up the testimony that they may be prepared against the day of burning. Please help us be ready to close up shop when it's time to get out of here. 47, we ask thee, Holy Father, to remember those who have been driven by the inhabitants of Jackson County, Missouri, from the lands of their inheritance, and break off, O Lord, this yoke of affliction that has been put upon them. A repeat of what you saw in 33, break it off, O Lord, break it off. It's interesting that when you repeat something, often it's just, you don't even know what to say next. It's just, I need this so desperately. It's please, please. It's like when Jesus was trying to get Martha's attention with the Mary and Martha ordeal, and he says her name twice, Martha, Martha. Here, this break it off, break it off. We're struggling in Kirtland. They are struggling and suffering mightily in Missouri. We were just there two years ago at Zion's camp, and they're still struggling in those counties outside Jackson. Break off the yoke. 48, thou knowest, O Lord, that they have been greatly oppressed and afflicted by wicked men, and our hearts flow out with sorrow because of their grievous burdens. We, we know it. We know that thou knowest. There's something about that admission. Because on the one hand, a lack of faith would say, is God not aware? Because he's not coming to the rescue. What is he doing? Why isn't he saving us? Why isn't he redeeming Zion himself if he said he'd fight our battles? No, it's thou knowest, O Lord, and we know that you know. And, and we trust that it's not ignorance on your part that's keeping you from saving the day. It must be divine restraint. And what are we supposed to be learning in the meantime? In 49, their question is simply not, will you ever, or are you aware? It's, it's how long? O Lord, how long wilt thou suffer this people to bear this affliction, and the cries of their innocent ones to ascend up in thine ears, and their blood come up in testimony before thee, 
and not make a display of thy testimony in their behalf. We know you're aware, we know that you want, you, that we know that your heart is poured out just in sorrow, just like ours is. This is testimony of the God who weeps. But it's also testimony of the Lord who condescends to be with us in our agonies, instead of just to come in and rescue us from them. If anything, the atonement of Jesus Christ gives him and God license to allow us to suffer, to become something better, because Jesus was willing to suffer right alongside us. I'm not going to pull either one of us out of it quite yet, because there's things you need to learn here. But I will remain here with you. That's incredibly compassionate, calm, with, passion, suffer. There's a fellow suffering here. But that phrase, how long? I get a sense of what Joseph's going to ask a little while later in Liberty Jail. How long till you come to our rescue? If you actually go online and search for how long throughout the standard works, it's amazing how often people ask God that. Uh, so if you've ever asked God that, you're in good company. How long will these things last? How long till my wayward children return? How long until I'm healed of this affliction? How long until the eunuchs of Israel are remembered? How long till I can come home and just be done with a life that's been difficult? The best place to see a lot of them is in the book of Psalms. And over and over and over, repeatedly throughout the Psalms. I mean, what, this is David and others pouring out their soul to God. And that's when you usually ask those kinds of questions. Here's just a handful of them. My soul is also sore vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long? Another one. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? Another. Lord, how long wilt thou look on? Rescue my soul from their destructions, my darling from the lions. Another one. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph in that repetition? Or this. How long, Lord, wilt thou hide thyself forever? Shall thy wrath burn like fire? That last one's actually a fascinating one because it's not God's anger at Israel's enemies. And how long are you going to let them... Uh, reign over us or keep us under their thumb. This one is, we're your enemy. We're the ones that are causing this. And how long will you be angry at us? Before we, well, before we repent, that probably answers the other question, before you forgive. That actually reminds me of the, the Missouri persecutions too. How long will you allow the Missourians to persecute us? Well, the Lord could respond, and he sometimes does, <laughs> to, to the psalmists and to others. Well, how long until you repent? So that, which begs the other question, how long will you be angry before you forgive us? One of my favorite hymns in the hymn book, and sadly, it's in the sealed portion of the hymn book, because we never sing it. Uh, I don't even know who wrote it, but it was part of, of Pratt's collection. So I don't know if Parley wrote it, he wrote a bunch of hymns, or he just he found it and liked it, and so he included it in some collection that he then shared with Emma or the rest of the church. But it's hymn number 50, and it's called The Come Thou Glorious Day of Promise. I love this. And, and the second verse, you get a sense of from the verse that we just read in section 109. 
The hymn reads, Come, thou glorious day of promise, come and spread thy cheerful ray, when the scattered sheep of Israel shall no longer go astray. Lord, how long wilt thou be angry? Shall thy wrath forever burn? Rise, redeem thine ancient people, their transgressions from them turn. Oh, that soon thou wouldst to Jacob thy enlivening spirit send. Of their unbelief and misery, make, O Lord, a speedy end. Can you see that they're both victims of others' persecution, but also victims of their own sin? Of their unbelief, that's on you, and misery, that's on others. Make a speedy end. I know the scattered sheep have gone astray. We've done this to ourselves in in large degree. But Lord, how long will you be angry? If you've ever been in conflict with someone and you know it's on you and they were justified, but you've, you've said you were sorry, and, but you know it's going to take a while for them to, to get over it. Uh, even the way I say it doesn't do justice to the damage you've caused the relationship. But this, how long will you be mad? I'm trying to change. And this, this sense of how long from verse 49 evokes all of that to me. In verse 50, have mercy, O Lord, upon the wicked mob. It's not just have mercy on us, have mercy on them. We're all trying to avoid thy judgments here. Have mercy upon the wicked mob who have driven thy people, that they may cease to spoil, that they may repent of their sins, if repentance is to be found. That last phrase, if repentance is to be found, this is Mormon wondering if the Spirit has ceased to strive with his people. This is wondering, have we gone too far to the point of no return? Now, the irony there is there is no point of no return as far as God is concerned. As often as my people repent, I will forgive them. Seven times 70 is not 490. It's lose count, okay? God will. But we have to approach him with that thought in mind if repentance is to be found. Otherwise, we're just assuming, well, he's always forgiven me in the past. He will again. God's trying to balance justice and mercy here. We need to also. And so not to presume upon his grace, not to just put it on his tab, but Lord, is repentance still to be found? I hate to even ask, but are you willing to give me one more chance, even though I said the same thing last time? Well, it's amazing that if we'll honor that, that choice on the Lord's part to forgive or not to forgive. I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive. To honor that and to acknowledge that he might not forgive. It's not an automatic. Well, then the Lord's mercy will always come through. Repentance is always to be found. But only if we sincerely hope that that's the case. We can't take it for granted. Verse 51, but if they will not, if they won't repent, then make bare thine arm, O Lord, and redeem that which thou didst appoint a Zion unto thy people. Do what Zion's camp couldn't, redeem the land of Zion. 52, and if it cannot be otherwise, we hope that otherwise is an option, peace for everyone, bring everyone to Zion. But if it can't be otherwise, that the cause of thy people may not fail before thee, May thine anger be kindled and thine indignation fall upon them. 
that they may be wasted away both root and branch from under heaven. Ooh, no root, no branch. That's Malachi 4 language. That's the family tree cut off from ancestors and from posterity. That's just a logging camp instead of the forest of family trees we're supposed to be created on this earth. If there's no other way, then please clear the timber. The ax is laid at the root of the tree. Clear the timber so that we can grow trees of life there, family trees of life. 53, but inasmuch as they will repent. Or come back to that as quick as we can. If it can't be otherwise, but please let it be. Okay, Repentance is our first hope. Inasmuch as they will repent, thou art gracious and merciful. It's not please be gracious, it's we know you are. As an aspect of your character, wilt thou turn away thy wrath when thou lookest upon the face of thine anointed? I am so moved by the way that is phrased. It's partly your character. Thou art gracious and merciful. But it's also partly your compassion. Your compassion, not just for your children who have sinned and are repenting, but your compassion for your son, the son of your bosom that makes repentance possible to begin with. There's something about that phrase, turn away thy wrath when thou lookest upon the face of thine anointed. Capital A. That wasn't capitalized in the original. It was capitalized later to clarify. We're not talking about the anointed servants. Remember we talked about they were anointed, God's going to seal the anointing? No. He's not looking at our face. He's not looking at me, a sinner who's finally come to my senses and is penitent, broken-hearted, contrite spirit, and just pleading, looking with tears in eye, please be merciful to me. I know you're gracious and merciful in general, but will you be merciful and gracious to me? Because I, I know I don't deserve it, and I'm, I'm throwing myself on the mercy of the court. Well, that's not the court scene that we've been promised. He's not looking at our face. He's looking at the face of Christ, the capital A anointed one. And with this, we have to go back to Doctrine and Covenants 45. Remember when the Lord says there, uh, listen to the voice of him who is your advocate with the Father. So there's the court case, your advocate. There's a capital A. Uh, he's the anointed, another capital A. But listen to his voice, who pleadeth your cause before the Father, saying, it's like, ooh, I get to listen now. Here's the closing arguments for my great advocate, my defense attorney. And remember what it was? Doctrine and Covenants 45, 3 through 5, listen to him who is the advocate with the Father, who is pleading your cause before him, saying, Father, behold the sufferings and death of him who did no sin, in whom thou wast well pleased. In other words, look at me, the son of your bosom. Behold the blood of thy son which was shed, the blood of him whom thou gavest, that thyself might be glorified. Look at me, Father, the son whom thou lovest. Wherefore, Father, now that you're looking at me instead of them, now that you see innocence exemplified rather than guilt personified, Father, Spare these, my brethren, that believe on my name, that they may come unto me and have everlasting life. We talked about this in our lesson on section 45. But do you remember? Father, don't look at them. You will see guilt written all over their face. The show of their countenance does witness of, against them, Isaiah says. It's, yeah, they did it. Everyone knows. 
So, but don't look at them, look at me. And you will see an innocence so intense it will change their scarlet sin to white as snow. Your wrath will be turned away when you look upon the face of thine anointed. I don't know if any painting or picture or film could ever do justice to what it must be like to look into the eyes of Christ. To see compassion, to see empathy and understanding, to see nothing but love from the Lord. And for the Father to look at the Son, I can imagine hearts melting as this embrace in the bosom of the Father. Of course I will forgive them, Son, because of what you did for them. I will accept your sacrifice in their stead. Of course I love all my children, but a son who has never done anything to offend me, of course I'll forgive them. There, there is profound personal connection when you look at the anointed, the advocate, the atoning one. Verse 54, have mercy, O Lord, upon all the nations of the earth. Have mercy upon the rulers of our land. May those principles which were so honorably and nobly defended, namely the constitution of our land by our fathers, be established forever. As I mentioned before, there are times where the nation where that temple is being dedicated gets dedicated along with it. It's the epicenter of, of extending sacred space. And the constitution, the United States, Bless our rulers, that they can live up. Much was given to us, much is expected of us. Much was given to them too. The Constitution, help them live up to that. 55, remember the kings and princes, the nobles, the great ones of the earth, all people and the churches, all the poor, the needy, the afflicted ones of the earth, from top to bottom, high to low, remember them all. 56, that their hearts may be softened. When thy servants shall go out from thy house, O Jehovah, to bear testimony of thy name, that their prejudices may give way before the truth, and thy people may obtain favor in the sight of all. There is so much missionary work assumed and implied and, and invoked in this dedicatory prayer of a temple. You cannot separate temple work from missionary work. In some ways, they're one and the same. Living or dead, we're, we're trying to bring all of God's children home. We're gathering Israel on both sides of the veil. It's all part of the same thing. And what are they praying for? We've already seen it earlier in the dedication. But here again, please sweep away the lies here. Do away with their prejudices. Even the word prejudice, pre, that's before, judice, this is to judge. A prejudice is simply a pre-judgment. I'm jumping to conclusions. I'm deciding the case before I've even heard it. And that, unfortunately, is what was happening for so many of the saints, especially missionaries. You knock on a cabin door somewhere, like, oh, I have a Book of Mormon. Like, <laughs> I read about that book in the newspaper. Uh, you fell for it? It's just a big joke. Uh, it's ridiculous. There's no way. Gold Bibles and, and angels and stuff. It, it can't happen in, in the full flood of the enlightened 19th century. <laughs> That's just prejudice on your part. You haven't even cracked the book open. You haven't, you haven't investigated. You haven't explored. You certainly haven't asked God about it. You haven't done your homework. And so we have to overcome prejudice. 
disabuse the public mind. 57. That all the ends of the earth may know that we, thy servants, have heard thy voice and that thou hast sent us. We didn't delude one another. We're not just trying to create something uh, out of whole cloth ourselves. This is your voice and your work and your glory, and you've sent us on these missions. 58. That from among all these, thy servants, the sons of Jacob, may gather out the righteous to build a holy city to thy name, as thou hast commanded them. We're trying to create Zion. We're trying to build the new Jerusalem to prepare the world for the second coming. And and the missionaries that come forth out of this temple endowed with power from on high are then to bring everyone back to it, to keep building temples around the earth, to ultimately build the, the, the temple at the center place in Independence, Missouri. Now, that's not the only one. 59, we ask thee to appoint unto Zion other stakes besides this one here in Kirtland, which thou hast appointed that the gathering of thy people may roll on in great power and majesty, that thy work may be cut short in righteousness. Now here again we see this, this tension, another contrary here, about lengthening versus shortening the time. There's a prolonged thing, so we have time to go out, stay the judgments. Don't, don't come down in judgment upon the world until we've cried repentance everywhere. But on the other hand, please cut short your work in righteousness. Remember that haunting verse in Joseph Smith Matthew? that unless those days are shortened, there shall none of their flesh be saved. No one's going to make it if we allow the, the, the adversary to extend the game time. I mean, he's got all the momentum on his side, and if there's enough time left on the clock, he'll come back and win, and no one will be able to make it. But then the Lord's reassurance, but for the elect's sake, according to the covenant, those days shall be shortened. Well, there's the prayer for it. Cut short your work in righteousness but at the same time extend it so people can repent. Oh, that's a tough place we're putting the Lord, a tough place we're putting ourselves. But in the meantime, may we build stakes all around the world, establish epicenters of righteousness on the isles of the sea. May we gather out thy people, the wheat from among the tares. Verse 16, Now these words, O Lord, we have spoken before thee, concerning the revelations and commandments which thou hast given unto us, who are identified with the Gentiles. We're doing that as a bunch of Gentiles. Yes, technically we're the house of Israel because we've been adopted in, or we've accepted Jesus Christ, or there's some Israelite blood in our veins. But we're doing this according to your commandments and revelations, but we know it goes beyond us, because those same commandments and revelations speak so often of the original house of Israel. You are covenant people that we know you still have an eye on. So bless them as well. 61, thou knowest that thou hast a great love for the children of Jacob, who have been scattered upon the mountains for a long time in a cloudy and dark day. There is such a history of anti-Semitism throughout history. And yet we know that thou, O God, loves thy chosen people. You loved them enough to call them, and you love them still. They've been scattered. The, the Jewish diaspora all over the world, the, like I said, so much anti-Semitism throughout history, so often by Christians who are justifying it by saying, well, you're the one that crucified Christ. So, no, careful. Christ was crucified for all of us. 62, we therefore ask thee to have mercy upon the children of Jacob, that Jerusalem from this hour may begin to be redeemed 
and the yoke of bondage may begin to be broken off from the house of David, and the children of Judah may begin to return to the lands which thou didst give to Abraham their father. This is the gathering of Israel in a very family history kind of way. Please bless the Jews around the world. Break off the yoke of bondage. Bring them back to the lands you promised to their father Abraham. This is like Moses trying to lead Israel back to Israel. Well, now it's Joseph instead of Moses. We've seen some parallels between the two, right? Science camp. But to, again, bring the Jews back to Jerusalem. It's interesting, there's a term called Zionism. And Zionism, is, as a political movement, is meant to bring Israel, bring the Jews back to their ancient homeland. The date that historians give to the beginning of, of modern Zionism is 1897, when this organization was officially created, Theodore Herzl, and this desire to come back. And then you've got to fast forward another 50 years plus, when in 1948, post-World War II, there is the establishment of the nation of Israel, and Jews begin to return from all over the world. Well, if 1948, we consider a date for the return of the Jews, well, let's be more generous. Let's call it 1897. Well, there's when they really begin to return. Well, let's give it an earlier date, shall we? How about 1836, before it was really on anybody's mind? It was on the Lord's, and it was on Joseph's. And, and, and at the dedication of the first temple of this dispensation, he's already praying for the return of the house of Israel, to the lands of their inheritance. That's amazing to me. It's not long thereafter that Joseph Smith, by inspiration, calls Orson Hyde, who had had some inspiration of his own, a dramatic dream in which he saw Constantinople and a bunch of European cities and, Jeru and Jerusalem and just, what's the Lord, what's the message the Lord is giving me? And then when Joseph comes a short time later and calls him on a mission, through Europe, down through the Middle East, Constantinople included, to get to, to Jerusalem and dedicate Israel for the return of the Jews, the rebuilding of the temple, all these things, that old Jerusalem meets new Jerusalem. That's 1841. And even now, there is an Orson Hyde Memorial Garden on the Mount of Olives. Uh, uh, just a quick, easy walk from the BYU Jerusalem Center that looks out across the Kidron Valley at the old city. And to see 1836, 1841, the land is dedicated for the return of the Jews. And 50 plus years later, Zionism, 50 plus years after that, the nation of Israel. That's amazing. Now, I want to clarify something, though, about the, the nation of Israel. Uh, and make this more theological than political. If you read the Book of Mormon about the return of the Jews, yes, there is a physical gathering of Israel, but there's also a spiritual gathering of Israel. And part of the question is, which comes first? The house of Israel has not yet returned to a belief in Jesus Christ. And that won't, I mean, second coming, when Christ, I mean, you've seen the prophecies, when they are saved by the Savior and come and see the marks in his hands and feet and ask, what, what are these? And that's when full recognition comes. These are the wounds with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Oh, and then, that was passive voice. He doesn't point any fingers, but there's a recognition on their part. Okay, this is the Messiah that we missed. 
He's given us another chance. But in most Book of Mormon passages that speak of the return, it's a spiritual return to the Lord that precedes and precipitates a physical return to the land. Uh, I, I'm, I don't want to get into politics on this, but I, and I'm grateful that the Jews have a homeland. I, I also care for the Palestinians that are there. Uh, I've, I know, having lived there for five months, I see both sides of the issue, and it's complicated. Okay? I wish there were an easier solution. The only one I know of is the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, but you get a sense of the order here as he couples uh, the return of the Jews in 62-3-4. Please remember them. Bring them back to their lands. But then 65, and cause that the remnants of Jacob who have been cursed and smitten because of their transgression be converted from their wild and savage condition to the fullness of the everlasting gospel. So yes, there's a physical return, but there's also a spiritual conversion to the fullness of the gospel. Then in 66, that they may lay down their weapons of bloodshed and cease their rebellions. It's like the anti-Nephi-Lehi's burying their swords deep in the earth. 67, and may all the scattered remnants of Israel who have been driven to the ends of the earth, this is the scattering, come to a knowledge of the truth, believe in the Messiah, and be redeemed from oppression and rejoice before thee. That's the gathering that we're really praying for and working towards. Brought to a knowledge of the truth, believe in Jesus Christ, be redeemed, rejoice. Those two gatherings, in a way, are inseparable. Yeah, but we need to be gathering Israel on both sides of the veil. Verse 68, he then shifts, and this is something that we see in many dedicatory prayers as well. So many other people have been remembered here. Remember the saints that are suffering. Remember the saints that have sacrificed. Remember the enemies of the church. Remember the house of Israel. But also, please remember the leaders of the church. Uh, those who have such a burden on their shoulders that are trying to bear it off. 68, O Lord, remember thy servant Joseph Smith, Jr. And all his afflictions and persecutions. How he has covenanted with Jehovah and vowed to thee, O mighty God of Jacob, and the commandments which thou hast given unto him, and that he hath sincerely striven to do thy will. To me, there's a humility here, a meekness, a petition on Joseph's part. Father, I've tried to do everything you've said. I know I haven't done it perfectly. Think about how many times you've called me to repentance in the Doctrine and Covenants. But here, please remember me, and I'm trying. I am sincerely striving to do thy will. So remember me. What I've tried, against the odds, persecution, affliction, I'm doing the best I can. In spite of my mistake, 69, have mercy, O Lord. Have mercy on me, but also upon his wife and children. This is for Emma. This is for our children. That they may be exalted in thy presence and preserved by thy fostering hand. If anyone worried about his family, it was Joseph. If anyone was cut off from his family often, whether because of responsibility and work, or because of persecution and imprisonment, it was Joseph. So please, Father, if I can't be there for Emma, wilt thou? If I can't raise my children, wilt thou? Not only my immediate family, but beyond them. Verse 70, have mercy upon all their immediate connections. Their, what's the antecedent? He just talked about his wife and children. So their immediate connections, that's extended family of Emma's. Emma sacrificed so much Joseph's family 
came into the church with him. Emma's family did not. And so here's this prayer, still weighing on Joseph's and Emma's mind and heart, have mercy upon all their immediate connections that their prejudices, they decided in advance too, may be broken up and swept away as with a flood, that they may be converted and redeemed with Israel and know that thou art God. Again, this, these concentric circles continue to expand. This is like Enos praying all night and all day for himself and then for his people and then for his enemies, the Lamanites. 71, remember, O Lord, the presidents, even all the presidents of thy church, all church leaders, that thy right hand may exalt them with all their families and their immediate connections, that their names may be perpetuated and had an everlasting remembrance from generation to generation. You see the epicenter? And the blessings beginning to flow. 72, remember all thy church, O Lord, with all their families and all their immediate connections, with all their sick and afflicted ones, with all the poor and meek of the earth, that the kingdom which thou hast set up without hands may become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. You do get a sense of this globalization of the kingdom of God. A sense of sacredness spreading out. It's interesting that in so many dedicatory prayers, it's not just the building that's being dedicated. It's the people that are there to be a part of it. It's the people outside, the people that come in and go out, the people on the threshold, the people that drive by, the, the land that it's situated in, and its past and its future, it, the, uh, the surroundings brought into the temple to be sac uh, sanctified and, and sac sacralized there. there. There's something beautiful about bless the whole church Bless the poor, the meek, bless all, bless the whole world. Ultimately, you're no respecter of persons. And this building is evidence of that. But may, the, may it fill the whole world as the mountain cut, as the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. 73, that thy church may come forth out of the wilderness of darkness and shine forth fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. How many times have we seen that in the Doctrine and Covenants? This woman of Revelation 12 that is sent off to the wilderness to be nourished for a time, apostate Christianity, so that she can then be brought forth to raise the child, the kingdom of God, that she had labored and travailed so diligently to try to bring forth. This is happening. In some ways, the church was never fully restored without the temple. Because God's people, which is ultimately what God is trying to restore, can never find their way home, collectively, all of humanity, without the house of God. Temples, more than anything else, is where you see, oh, the fairness of the moon and the clarity of the sun and the terribleness, the awe-inspiring of an army with banners. 74, and be adorned as a bride for that day when thou shalt unveil the heavens and cause the mountains to flow down at thy presence and the valleys to be exalted, the rough places made smooth, that thy glory may fill the earth. Can you hear Handel's Messiah warming up in the background? Every valley shall be exalted. Uh, this is highway construction. We're trying to, to make it as quickly as possible that Jesus can return again. For what? For his wedding. Because the church of Christ, the bride of Christ, has been adorned. I think the most beautiful sight I ever beheld in my life was my wife right after she became my wife. And there 
in the San Diego Temple at the base of that magnificent staircase that fills one of the towers. To be waiting there to go out to take pictures, we'd just been sealed minutes ago. And for her to come out adorned as a bride, unveiled in all her newlywed beauty, that is a memory I want to relive frequently uh, in, in eternity. And to think of Jesus looking at the church. If the woman is coming out of the wilderness to raise a child, well, where's the father in all of this? Remember, that in, as far as our covenant relationship is concerned, Jesus is the father of the covenant and the church is the mother of the covenant. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. There's the syllogism. There's the analogy. And so if the church is coming out of the wilderness and putting on bridal clothing to renew their vows, because it's been a while that they've been separate, and the second coming ultimately is the day where the bride of Christ is there for the wedding feast of the Lamb. Verse 75, that when the trump shall sound for the dead, we shall be caught up in the cloud to meet thee, that we may ever be with the Lord. See, this is second coming context. This is the parable of the, the virgins, the ten virgins, wise and foolish, because the wedding is about to take place. Will we be caught up to meet him, brought into the wedding feast? 76, we will be, if this is the case, that our garments may be pure, that we may be clothed upon with robes of righteousness, with palms in our hands and crowns of glory upon our heads, and reap eternal joy for all our sufferings. Can you picture what he's describing there? Pure garments, washed white in the blood of the Lamb, robes of righteousness, which can only come from him, palms in our hands. There's the triumphal entry. There's the white handkerchief as we join in a Hosanna shout that echoes off the everlasting hills. Crowns of glory upon our heads, reaping joy that more than makes up for all of our sufferings, our tribulation, our poverty. Thanks be to God for the blessing of this holy house that's preparing us for that glorious day. So he concludes his prayer, his petition. It's been a long one. Did you rub your knees every once in a while? Uh, but have you heard him speaking to God? 77, O Lord God Almighty, hear us. In these are petitions. Answer us from heaven, thy holy habitation, where thou sittest enthroned. And then the most beautiful list of attributes enthroned with glory, honor, power, majesty, might, dominion, truth, justice, judgment, mercy. We could go on. I'll just summarize it with this. And an infinity of fullness from everlasting to everlasting. Oh, you could spend some time pondering each of those attributes, seeing how they are manifest through the ordinances of the temple. Uh, the, the infinity of fullness he is trying to pour out upon us as the temple and temple worship makes us a little more like him. 78, oh hear, oh hear, oh hear us, oh Lord. Oh, that beautiful repetition. 
hoping to get the Lord's attention, as he often has to repeat himself when he tries to get ours. But hear us, O Lord, and answer these petitions, and accept the dedication of this house unto thee, the work of our hands, which we have built unto thy name. Such meekness in that hope. We did the best we could. I pray it's good enough for you to accept. 79, and also this church, accept that too, to put upon it thy name and help us by the power of thy spirit that we may mingle our voices with those bright shining seraphs around thy throne with acclamations of praise, singing Hosanna to God and the Lamb. Hosanna to God and the Lamb. There's a temple dedication. There's the Spirit of God like a fire is burning. There's the Hosanna shout. For the King of Kings is coming into his holy city. The Lord is coming into his house. To, to mingle our voices. This is, this is the choir. This is W.W. Phelps. You can just hear the voices beginning to, to be raised. And mingled with those shining seraphs, if you think about the singing and praising of God in Revelation 4, the singing and praising of Jesus Christ in Revelation 5, there's a lot of singing in the book of Revelation. And it's all preparing for the second coming of Jesus Christ. I actually even love in, near the end of the Book of Mormon where Mormon, who's this battle-hardened warrior, you picture this old retired veteran, and not, actually not even retired, he never gets to retire. He, uh, he finally falls in battle himself. But what's all, all he wants? He talks near the end of the Book of Mormon about joining the choirs above. I love the thought of this grizzled old warrior just wanting to join the choir. I just want to sing. I don't want to fight my enemy. I want to praise my God. And well, we'll all get to as we come to him. And then he closes, verse 80. And let these thine anointed ones, lowercase a this time, lowercase a, be clothed with salvation, and thy saints shout aloud for joy. Amen and amen. Hosanna, shout, not a muffled whisper. Shout it. And again, this pent-up emotion, all these years of sacrifice, and finally offering it to God, clothed with salvation. Clothing is covering. Covering in Hebrew, kafar, means to atone. Uh, anytime the Old Testament talks about covering things, there's atonement symbolism there. And so here, to be clothed with salvation, to be covered from our own wickedness or nakedness, through the atonement of Jesus Christ. That is something worth shouting about for joy. Well, what a Sunday. Uh, March 27, 1836, what a Sunday. What a day of Pentecost. But it wasn't the end. There were meetings uh, later that night. There was meetings during the week, a repetition of these kinds of events for those that weren't able to squeeze into the building the first time. And then the following Sunday, which happened to be part of Passover week. It wasn't the exact night that the Jews were partaking of the Passover, but because the Passover is a long feast, it was definitely during the week of Passover. I mean, Passover in Judaism is similar to Easter in Christianity. Uh, remember Jesus of the Last Supper was a Passover meal, and then he shifts it to sacrament, uh, and, and that's, that's Easter. Well, what was the Sunday before Easter Sunday? It was Palm Sunday. 
the day that they dedicated the Kirtland Temple, March 27th, was Palm Sunday. Uh, so this would have been Easter Sunday. Uh, but it is part of Passover week in Judaism. And what takes place is, is described in section 110. In some ways, 109 is the question and the request. And 110 is the answer and the acceptance. Uh, what, what happens there, the way that the temple was set up was one large open space down in, uh, uh, on the lower court and the upper court. But then, I mean, this is maybe where we get the idea of those accordion dividers that we have at the back of the chapel to separate the cultural hall. Uh, because they had veils in the temple, it's different than what we're used to as far as temple veils are concerned. That came in a fuller endowment. Again, this is initiatory ordinances. But those veils that the women so dutifully sewed uh, during construction was to subdivide the area so smaller groups could meet in smaller rooms, so to speak, of that large open space in the temple. Okay? And what's happening on uh, April 3rd, 1836, is that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery are together in the temple and a veil has been dropped uh, to separate their section from other parts of the temple. And to me, there's something beautiful about that idea of, of creating a veil. Because another veil is mentioned in verse 1, and it's a veil that is taken from their minds so the eyes of their understanding could be open. To me, there's just some kind of, I don't know, symmetry here that Joseph and Oliver put down one veil and the Lord lifts another veil that if I will create some kind of separation between me and the rest of what's going on in the world, then God can remove what separates me from him. That to me, there's just something about that. And so, as we saw in verse 1, the veil is taken from their minds. Their eyes of, of understanding are open. And what do they see? We usually jump ahead in section 110 to talk about the coming of Moses and Elias and Elijah. And I can't blame you. I mean, that, that's incredible. These keys are being restored. But never forget how the vision begins. It's a vision of Christ. Remember Joseph had promised that those that are sufficiently sanctified will see him? Remember the prayers throughout 109 is that God would accept this building as his house? In verse 2, he does. We saw the Lord standing upon the breastwork of the pulpit, before us, and under his feet was a paved work of pure gold in color like amber. If you've ever seen pictures of the pulpits in the Kirtland Temple with the letters in front, I mean, all those letters represent different offices within the priesthood uh, of Melchizedek priesthood or Aaronic priesthood and the deacons and the teachers and the priests and the high priests and the elders and so on. All that stuff we learned in section 107 about ecclesiology an organization of the priesthood. And there's a spot for all of them. Well, where's the spot for Jesus? Above them. And above that pulpit, uh, with, a, with something beneath his feet so that he won't even touch. I mean, how beautiful upon the, meet, uh, the mountains are the feet of those that publish peace. Well, he's not quite ready to put his feet on the mountain itself. But there he is in the mountain of the Lord. And he gets pretty close. There is this paved work of pure gold, uh, a metal that does not rust, that does not decay, that doesn't diminish, something rare, something pure, something holy, something valuable, 
and Christ is upon it. Verse 3, his eyes were as a flame of fire. Can you sense this purifying gaze? The hair of his head was white like the pure snow. Hair is often used as a symbol of authority. Think Samson, think Absalom, think Elisha as they, as they mock him for being bald. That might have, he might have had a full head of hair. They're just mocking his lack of authority in their minds. But his hair is white like the pure snow. Think of an authority based on purity and worthiness. A strong angel couldn't loose the book with the seven seals, but someone was worthy to do so. There's, there's a hair white as snow. His countenance shone above the brightness of the sun. There's the source of all light, the light of the world. And his voice was as the sound of the rushing of great waters, even the voice of Jehovah. Rushing great waters. You can either think of the power and majesty of a waterfall or the gentle, oh, constant sound of a river. It's like the river of Laman in the valley of Lemuel. If it would just continually flow towards the fountain of all righteousness. Well, the Lord is that fountain. His voice is the rushing of great waters. And what does it say? Verse 4. I am the first and the last. I am he who liveth I am he who was slain. I am your advocate with the Father. There's Alpha and Omega. There's the beginning and the ending. I'm here to end the apostasy as this woman comes out of the wilderness. I'm here to begin gathering Israel on both sides of the veil. I was slain, but I live still. I have conquered sin and death, and I'll do that for all of you. I'm your advocate after all. Your advocate with a Father who looks at me in love instead of you in anger. Verse 5, Behold, your sins are forgiven you. You are clean before me. Therefore, lift up your heads and rejoice. It's amazing how often the Lord comes to reassure us with things like that. When, when the first vision took place, and oh, Joseph had several things on his mind, but first and foremost was, can I possibly be clean? Could I ever be forgiven? Not just what church to join. I, I want, to be, want to be clean, and I'm, I'm sure that's going to happen through a church, so which one can help me access the atonement? But more than just don't join any church, you're going to restore things through you, was the reassurance to Joseph Smith, your sins are forgiven. The earliest account of the first vision, that's, that's his greatest takeaway. It grows in perspective later. And it's like, oh, that was a lot, about, a lot more than just me. But here again, I'm here to accept the house. But I've always preferred people over places. Even the temple, as glorious it is, as it is, is a means to a greater end, and you're the end. I'm not here to restore just church and gospel and priesthood, or temple even. I'm here to restore my people. And so you, my people, you're clean. Before I accept the house, I accept the builders of the house. That's key. So lift up your heads. Rejoice. When God calls us to repentance, he brings us to our knees, but he doesn't intend to leave us there. He shows us the, the, the design, the pattern of the temple, and that does humble us. But then he shows us the pattern of the temple. He says, get up and get in, because you need to be as, as, as well built as this edifice is. Six, let the hearts of your brethren rejoice. Let the hearts of all my people rejoice, who have with their might built this house to my name. And what is there to be so joyful about? 
the fact that I accept your gift. Verse 7, Behold, I have accepted this house. My name shall be there, and I will manifest myself to my people in mercy in this house. Yes, it's in mercy. It's not injustice. You don't deserve it, even when I, I make you clean because you had things to be cleaned up, cleaned up from. But in mercy, I will manifest myself to you. You remember back in section 97 when he redefines Zion as the pure in heart and also promises that all the pure in heart that enter the house of God can see me there? Now we saw in section 88, we'll see him in God's own time, in God's own way, and according to God's own will. There are symbolic ways to see him, but there are literal ways to see him too. 93 said that at the very beginning. Repent of your sins and come unto me and obey my words and, and hearken to my voice and keep my commandments. You'll see me. You'll know that I am. Well, what, no, no place better to do it than here. And Joseph and, and Oliver are literally seeing him right before them. Verse 8, Yea, I will appear unto my servants. I'm doing it right now. And speak unto them with mine own voice, if my people will keep my commandments and do not pollute this holy house. Be obedient, be worthy, and the promised blessings will be fulfilled. Yea, verse 9, the hearts of thousands, tens of thousands, you could keep multiplying it beyond there, shall greatly rejoice in consequence of the blessings which shall be poured out and the endowment with which my servants have been endowed in this house, with which they have been endowed. I've already poured out power upon you beyond your imagination. There's yet more endowment to come, yet more power to give you, a gift that keeps on giving. But the blessings that will be poured out in consequence of those blessings, as a result of them, unnumbered children of God, by, by orders of ten, will rejoice right, along, right alongside you. And verse 10, the fame of this house shall spread to foreign lands, and this is the beginning of of the blessing which shall be poured out upon the heads of my people. Even so, amen. This is just the start. This is the beginning of the blessing, the first temple in this dispensation. It took till my childhood to get to 50. And now we're, I mean, it took President Hinckley to, uh, in the year 2000 and a rush of smaller temples around the world to get to 100. And Man, by the looks of things, President Nelson just wants to break President Hinckley's record. <laughs> not, not for his sake, for the Lord's sake and for the world's sake. And temples are going up all over the place. It's amazing. The, the fame of this house is spreading to foreign lands. And better yet, the house itself is spreading and being built in foreign lands all around the world. Uh, Russia, I never would have imagined that in my Cold War childhood. Uh, Hong Kong, which then reverts back to China, hello, and a temple for China, a temple in Dubai in the Middle East, a temple in Rome. I mean, the gasps that you heard in the conference center when that was announced, I'm sure will only be uh, outweighed uh, or outvocalized. I mean, I, I know he's told us we need to be reverent here. Just let, let it be a gasp on the inside. But I don't think it can be helped when the day finally comes where he announces a temple for Jerusalem, or a temple for Independence, Missouri, and New Jerusalem. Again, I don't, and by he, I don't necessarily mean President Nelson, although that'd be amazing. Uh, but at some point in the Lord's time, when he's hastened his work and cut it short in righteousness, to make those announcements, wow, 
uh, epicenters of holiness in foreign lands as the knowledge of God covers the earth, as the waters cover the sea. What a vision. And after that vision, come more. Verse 11, after this vision closed, the heavens were again opened unto us. This is like section 76, but not degrees of glory. It's just, it's all glory. And Moses appeared before us and committed unto us the keys of the gathering of Israel from the four parts of the earth and the leading of the ten tribes from the land of the north. On my mission, some people would be like incredulous that like, wait, Peter, James, and John appeared to Joseph Smith to restore the Melchizedek priesthood? Like, oh yeah. Wait, wait, John the Baptist appeared to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery to restore the Aaronic priesthood? Oh yeah. Well, that's just the beginning. Uh, you get to section 128. There's all kinds of visions and angels and heavenly manifestations. Joseph was a spiritual amphibian, as comfortable on this side of the veil as the other. Land or water, heaven or earth, it's all familiar territory to him. Well, in this one, Moses, Elias, and Elijah all appear. And why do they do it? It's to restore keys. In a way, this is the modern day equivalent of the Mount of Transfiguration experience where Peter, James, and John were there, and Moses, Elias, Elijah come and appear to them to restore priesthood keys, to, to, to part the veil and explain some things about the, uh, the atonement of Jesus Christ, the death that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. That's my favorite verb. Death is not something he suffered. Death is something he accomplished. Uh, they explain the transfiguration of the earth that will someday take place. Peter, James, and John's calling and election are made sure I mean, the Mount of Transfiguration is an incredible moment in, in history. In fact, it's, I always chuckle. I sometimes joke with students. I'm like, did Moses ever enter the Promised Land? And they're like, no. He was stuck at, stopped at Mount Nebo. He couldn't enter the Promised Land. I'm like, well, think a little harder. And to, it's fun. It's like, oh, well, he just had to wait a millennium plus. But yes, he entered the Promised Land from, the, from above. <laughs> Not from the east over Jordan. From above uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. And it was, I could just picture him like, I finally got to the promised land, yes. Uh, well, in a similar vein, those, those ancient worthies come to the Kirtland Temple. Uh, no longer just translated beings. Remember Moses and Elijah, for example, never tasted of death. That way they could come back and restore keys pre-resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits. But once Jesus was resurrected, B.C. saints could be resurrected too. And so you picture now these as they return to Again, restore priesthood keys. I have a resurrected body to do it, not just a translated one. Well, what was Moses' keys? So fitting that it would be he who gathered Israel out of Egypt and brought them to a promised land that would then give keys to a modern Moses to go and do that likewise. Gather scattered Israel. You just prayed for it a week ago. Well, time to go. Uh, just like Jesus in Matthew 16, Peter, I promise you the keys of the kingdom. One chapter later, Matthew 17, here they come, Mount of Transfiguration. So go gather Israel on, on this side of the veil. Go do missionary work. This moment, Moses becomes the embodiment of, the, of that mission of the church, proclaiming the gospel. In fact, there's a verse in Deuteronomy where Moses says that once Israel repents, then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out unto the utmost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee and from thence will he fetch thee. 
This wasn't back in Exodus where he's like, hey, you guys were scattered to Egypt. I'm going to gather you home. This is Deuteronomy when there's like, I'm ready to cross the Jordan now. We've already been gathered out of, of Egypt. He's like, well, the past is prelude. Uh, just a preview of coming uh, destructions and scatterings. You will be scattered. I, he doesn't give them all the detail. It'll come later. But he does promise them that through repentance they will be gathered home. And how fitting that it would be he that would restore those keys to Joseph Smith to initiate the gathering of Israel in this final dispensation. Then verse 12, after this, Elias appeared and committed the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham, saying that in us and our seed, all generations after us should be blessed. Now this one's tricky because Elias is both a name and a title. We saw it back in section 27 when we talked about the Elias that would be there at the great last sacrament meeting. And we identified that Elias as Gabriel, as Noah. Uh, but Elias is the Greek form of Elijah, so it can refer to him. Elias can refer to John the Baptist. And, and Elias, by way of title, is simply a preparer of the way. Even Jesus was an Elias of sorts as he prepares the, the earth for its redemption. There's an Elias of of preparation and Elias of restoration. There, there's a lot of Eliases out there. And as a name or, and or as a title, it can be really confusing. And none more confusing than this one. Because we honestly don't know who this Elias is. And some have suggested, uh, could it be one of the Eliases we've already identified? Maybe. Some have suggested, could it be Abraham himself as an Elias to come and commit the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham? I mean, if it's in us and our seed that all the earth will be blessed, th those are words God gave to Abraham. Beautiful combination of the exclusivity and inclusivity. Good contrary to prove. Exclusive, you and your family. Your, this is a chosen people. But inclusivity, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's why we go out and share the gospel on both sides of the veil. Uh, but who, which Elias? I don't. Nobody knows. Some have suggested maybe it was just an unnamed prophet in the days of Abraham. I mean, he wasn't alone in this. He knew Melchizedek. We talked about that last week. Uh, was there some other Elias that helped prepare the way during his day, and has returned to restore the keys of the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham? Now, don't think of Gospel of Abraham being some separate gospel. It's all the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in the dispensation, when that gospel was dispensed to Abraham, many have, have, have tried to explain this dispensation of the gospel of Abraham as, as eternal marriage, eternal families. Uh, that's actually a really important one. If it's all the families of the earth will be blessed, all generations, it's us and our seed. Family was everything to father Abraham, the father of the faithful. If you think about Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Rachel, the chosen seed was coming through family lines, through specific marriages in which the mother was just as essential as the father. In some ways, the mother was more essential. Since plural marriage in those days, there were other wives and other children. But the birthright child had to come through a specific mother. So more than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I think it's actually more technically correct to refer to him as the God of Sarah and Rebekah and Rachel. That was the line that mattered. Uh, there were other lines that could still say, 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Interesting stuff. But uh, to think of eternal marriage and a patriarchal priesthood, we talked about that a little in section 107 too, that that's the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham. And that is being restored to Joseph and Oliver through this Elias. If Moses was gathering Israel, proclaim the gospel, Elias is, 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 is pairing families, couples, sealing husbands and wives, bringing a patriarchal order here of priesthood. There's perfecting the saints if I've ever seen it. And then verse 13, after this vision had closed, another great and glorious vision burst upon us. For Elijah the prophet, who was taken to heaven without tasting death, stood before us. Now, if it's anybody that's going to burst through the veil instead of just gently part it, it's going to be Elijah. I mean, he who talked smack to the priests of Baal on top of Mount Carmel, right? Uh, uh, we got fire. Yes, we do. We got fire. How about you? Uh, he was a smack talker. He was, he was a bold prophet. And so for him to burst through the veil, it's like, you know, have any idea how long I've been waiting for this? To turn the hearts of the children of the fathers and the fathers of the children, that's what he's going to do. Uh, he bursts through and in verse 14 says, Behold, the time has fully come, and it's about time, which was spoken of by the mouth of Malachi, testifying that he, me, Elijah, should be sent before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This has been so long in coming. I mean, I'm back in the books of Kings. And then fast forward, and then you get Malachi reminding, prophesying that someday I'll return. And then fast forward and... Uh, Moroni gives Joseph, 17-year-old Joseph, the hint that it's, it's go time. This is going to happen. Uh, but then we still have to wait another nine years, 1836. <sighs> Finally, I've come, and I'm here to turn hearts. That's verse 15. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest the whole earth be smitten with a curse. We explain all of that back in our discussion of section 2 where Moroni's words from Malachi are canonized. And to understand the, the need for hearts to turn, I mean, we're seeing all, all of that take place. The hearts of Gentiles to Jews as we gather Israel. Uh, the, to the hearts of husbands to wives as we seal them as couples in the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham. The hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers as Entire family lines are sealed and bringing, binding on earth and having things bound in heaven. Those are the ultimate keys of the kingdom. Not just the sealing power for families, but the sealing of every ordinance and having it honored on the other side. The ability to, to look death in the face and say, you, you have to honor what we've done here. Fitting again for Elijah. Anyone who could stare death in the face and talk it down, whether from, from the top of, of Mount Carmel or from, uh, from his chariot of fire when he was caught up to heaven. Uh, no curse for the earth. No, no logging camp cut off from roots and branches. This is a forest of family trees, trees of life, everyone. Therefore, verse 16, the keys of this dispensation are committed into your hands, and by this ye may know that the great and dreadful day of the Lord is near, even at the doors. Let me talk about a dun-dun-dun. It's, it's go time. It's 
things, truths, powers, authorities have been restored to the earth. The dispensation of the fullness of times has just gotten fuller. And receiving these keys from dispensation heads past to be able to continue in this final one to bring to pass God's work and glory to give the opportunity for all of God's children to come home. Oh, it, it's, it's amazing what happens this day. Uh, it's not just that Elijah, Elijah was waiting all this time. It's that the house of Israel had been waiting all this time. The, every Passover, and remember this is still Passover week, uh, they would set a place, an empty spot for Elijah. Knowing that as Malachi had promised, someday he'll return. We don't totally know why, but we know he will. Uh, well, we know we, we, we know why, we know he will. In fact, we know he did. There's a classic story when Elder Grand Richards, he was a hilarious apostle, great sense of humor. So many of them have that. Uh, and Elder Grand Richards, I mean, he would, near the end of his life, uh, he was so old and, I mean, the, he had to amp amputate a leg. And he still had the best attitude. He would just joke. They're like, how you doing, Elder Richards? And he'd laugh and go, I don't know. Uh, I'm on my last leg. <laughs> uh, or he'd say, well, you know, if God wants to take me, he knows he's going to have to take me a piece at a time. I mean, he was just a fun, fun-loving, hilarious man. Really good-natured. And he was really good friends with Teddy Kollek, who was the mayor of Jerusalem at the time. And uh, at one point, he was in Jerusalem, and Teddy Kollek was showing him around town, and he goes into an old Jewish synagogue. And there, within Jewish synagogues, are very ornate uh, chair, uh, one chair that's very ornate, and it's called the, the seat of Elijah. He will return. We got seats for him at Passover. We got seats for him in the synagogue. When will he come to to occupy it? And in his own, because he was good friends with the, with the mayor and could get away with it, and because he had this this uh, hilarious sense of humor himself, he played stupid and he pointed to the chair and he's like, "Hey, Teddy, what what's that's a fancy chair? What's that for?" And falling into Elder Richard's trap, Teddy Collick said, oh, well, that's, it's called the seat of Elijah. And he starts to explain. And, and the Grand Richard just smiles again, kind of impish wink, and is like, well, tell him to take it down. They missed him. He already came. And then he explained the, the, what took place in section 110 uh, back in 1836. I don't know how Teddy Collick responded to that one. Uh, but there is something amazing about all of these threads coming together uh, into this beautiful tapestry there in Kirtland, Ohio, in 1836. The, the threads of ancient Jewish prophecy and modern fulfillment, the threads of different dispensations coming together in this final dispensation, the different threads of pro uh, proclaiming the gospel, thank you, Moses, of perfecting the saints, thank you, Elias, of redeeming the dead, thank you, Elijah, all of these powers and authorities and keys and purposes and promises coming together in the house of God. That's where it takes place. The temple is where God keeps his promises. It's where we go to make some and to receive the promises that God would make with us. I want to close today with one last verse from Ezekiel. The same one who had such glorious visions of a temple yet to be built. Uh, he who spoke of, show them what it looks like, and then show them what it looks like again. Well, in Ezekiel 46, 9, 
He says, but when the people of the land shall come before the Lord in the solemn feasts, which takes place at the temple, he that entereth in by the way of the north gate to worship shall go out by the way of the south gate. He that entereth by the way of the south gate shall go forth by the way of the north gate. He shall not return by the way of the gate whereby he came in, but shall go forth over against it. Now, I think the first time I read that, I was thinking, why, that interesting, he's really specific. If you come in south, you got to leave north. If you come in north, you got to leave south. Uh, it reminds me of the emails I get from my elementary school child's uh, principal, where it's like, this is how you do drop off and pick up. You got to come from the east and then go through the, it don't know, do not enter from the west. It's going to be a backup and it's going to be horrible. Uh, so I, first when I read that, it's like, so is that just, I don't know, traffic control? Uh, just no U-turns in the middle of the feast. Just keep on going all the way through. Well, there may have been some truth to that. But the more I pondered that principle, I realized, wait a minute, what's the Lord teaching? If you come into the temple from one direction, go out in the opposite. In other words, do not leave the same way you came. We thought of incomings and outgoings. Make sure there's a change in you. A change in temperature with this rushing mighty wind. A change of heart and of mind and of perspective as you've learned within God's house of learning. As you've become more glorious in his house of glory. Please remember that the next time you go to the temple. Yes, you'll probably have to go out the same door. <laughs> okay, the, the car is still in the same spot in the parking lot. But spiritually speaking, when you go to the house of God, Make sure you leave it different. That is the difference his house is meant to make.